0: And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich A worse way to lose a child than to have that child be murdered. Could it get worse than that? Yes, it could. What if you were told that your child was sexually assaulted before they were murdered? What if that happened to them when they were just six years old? Could it get worse than that? Of course it can. What if they were murdered in your home while you slept peacefully in your bed? What if they were murdered the night after Christmas, killed in the basement after another successful Christmas where everyone got what they wanted in the dream home your family lived in, the dream home you bought with the money you made after busting your ass for years, launching your own business, merging with two other businesses, becoming president of this new company, positioning it for a massive buyout, making millions along the way. What if your daughter was taken from you just five short years removed from the loss of another one of your daughters? You just recovered as much as one can recover from the first loss. You just rebuilt. Your life after divorce and death, spectacularly rebuilt it, and then this happens. Could it get worse than that? Yes. Sadly, there is almost always room for at least a little bit of worse. What if you were the one to find her dead body, and then you became one of the prime suspects in her murder, and your wife became another, and then your nine year old son became the third? What if the court of public opinion decided that one of you, or two of you, or all of you had to have killed your daughter? And then that stigma followed you for the rest of your life. And then your self-made fortune faded away, the homes and the boats and more sold to pay for massive legal fees, tabloid after tabloid, accusing you of murder. Everywhere you go, people looking at you in disgust. It doesn't get much worse than that. And this is exactly what may have happened to John Bennett Ramsey, father of the six-year-old beauty pageant winner, John Bennett Ramsey, who was murdered in the Ramsey, Colorado home in 1996. Despite being publicly exonerated by the district attorney's office as a suspect in his daughter's death years after first being accused, John Bennett Ramsey's murder still remains unsolved and many still think her father, John, had something to do with it. Do I think he did it? Or had something to do with it? Did his wife do it? Or his son? I don't know. I really don't. My God, this case is a confusing one. I felt dizzy doing this research. The more you unravel this case, the more complicated it gets. Right when you think you know who did it, a new piece of the puzzle comes along the way and just obliterates all of your former resolve. Curious what conclusions you'll come to today. We take a deep dive into the mysterious murder of John Bonnet Ramsey, one of the most infamous unsolved murder cases in American history, on another Who Done It True Crime Edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. The content parade continues here on Time Suck. 158 straight weeks of deep dives—dives dives that have gotten deeper each year. Just over three years now. Yeah, yeah, yeah! Hail Nimrod! Be gone, Lucifina, praise Bojangles, praise Michael McDonald, Triple M, Michael motherfucking McDonald, and thanks for listening. Because it has been three years, we just released a reprint of the very first Time Suck Tea for our little anniversary, our little birthday here on the show, the original Time Suck Tea that features the original logo. Many of you probably have never even seen that logo. The OG first edition tea is back now in two colors, navy blue and original gray, And Isabella 3001 team made out of 100% cotton, and for old time's sake, it's also made out of 100% real baby skin. Just like the first time. I forgot we started that dark with our fabric choice. (laughs) Yikes. Oh, my heck. My Lanta! Woo. So check out the uh, Time Sucks Shopify store. It's easy to find. Good old Google. You just link to it from the episode description as well. Thank you for all the recent ratings and reviews. Over 9,000 ratings, over 2,300 reviews on iTunes alone. Appreciate it so much. Appreciate the thousands of you who gave my new horror podcast that I do with my wife, Lindsay, Queen of the Suck, scared to death a listen this past week after a small tech dilemma. It's on all the usual podcast players now. And charting, charting on iTunes, big time. So, uh, oh man, couldn't be happier about that. You can watch me try and scare my wife, Lindsay, with two tales of allegedly true paranormal horror on YouTube. I suggest giving it a look this time around. It's a... Uh, it's visually, visually a little more stimulating than, uh, than, you know, me sitting here talking to you. A new episode will drop every Tuesday night at the stroke before midnight Pacific time. Apparently saying midnight is too confusing. I, I realize when you say midnight, no one knows which day you're talking about. So we're it's Tuesday night, the stroke before midnight. Uh, scared to death, give fear a chance. Hoping I had a blast this past week in Phoenix. I had to record this before traveling. I'm guessing I had a great time getting to see Jimmy Wisman. James Petrogallo from the fantastic true crime podcast, Crime and Sports, Small Town Murder. Man, those guys know how to put on good shows. Uh, Plans were made to hang out with them both and James' lovely and hilarious wife, Sarah. So I'm I'm hoping by the time you hear this, that I had a great time hanging out with all of them. Love that crew. Uh, The Detroit stand-up special shows are now both sold out. Gonna be a blast. Thank you so much. Small chance additional tickets will go on sale the day of. Depends on some tech stuff. Depends on if there's extra room in the venue after they've set up all the cameras Sometimes there will be. Sometimes there won't be. If there are a few tickets available last minute, I will post about it at at Dan Cummins Comedy on Instagram at Dan Cummins Comedy Instagram. So follow Nimrod Wilsitz if you uh, you know want a chance to go to that show. Tickets are available for this weekend shows in Indianapolis at Helium Comedy Club in Tampa at Side Splitters October tenth to the thirteenth. Also to my ten thousand laughs Comedy Festival show in Minneapolis October nineteenth, and then it's Portland, Oregon, Columbus, Ohio, Denver, Colorado. Grand Rapids, Michigan, Tacoma, and Spokane, Washington to finish out 2019 and to wrap up the Happy Murder Tour. Uh, DanCummins.tv for more tour info. Last thing, I keep fucking up this uh, uh, month's charity website. It's youthonrecord.org. Impulse was last month. I keep saying the right charity, but I keep giving the wrong website. So at youthonrecord.org, we gave $3,000 this month to Denver's youthonrecord.org. Click on that site in the episode description to find out how great they really are I, uh, Lindsay and I may be on their podcast. They do a podcast about the good things they're doing when I do my shows in Denver. Okay. Time now to move on over to today's Colorado-based topic. The mysterious murder, the very mysterious murder of young beauty queen, uh, you know, a victim. I mean, you know, they're always taken too soon, but especially this case taken far, far too soon. John Benet Ramsey. The story begins the day after Christmas, 1996, almost 23 years ago. The Ramsey family had just hosted a lavish, successful Christmas party on Christmas Day. The Ramseys were John and Patricia Ramsey, uh, known as Patsy, nine-year-old son, Burke Ramsey, and their six-year-old daughter, John Benet Ramsey. John also had two living children from his first marriage, 20-year-old John Andrew and 24-year-old Melinda, who were spending Christmas in 1996 with their mother, Cindy, John's first wife in Marietta, Georgie. Uh, Georgie? Georgia, Georgie, you know, down in Georgie. Oh, Georgie land, getting my ticket to Georgie. The Ramsey family lives in an affluent area of Boulder in a huge 7,240 square foot Tudor style dream home at 749 15th Street in the exclusive swank ass neighborhood of Chattaqua. Good name, good name for an expensive neighborhood. might be Chattaqua, Chattaqua. I think, yeah, I said it. Uh, that's, That's a way better name for a nice neighborhood than like toilet nuggets or missing fingernails. Whoa, that's a rough one. Sure, I can swing by. Where do you live again? Uh, missing fingernails? You, you know what? I can't swing by. I thought I thought you bought a place in uh, Chattaqua. Uh, people named Flint and Chad live in a place called Chattaqua. People named Shredder and Gumbo live in missing fingernails. Uh, the Ramsey home cost John $500,000, which home-wise is like a million or two today maybe more than $2 million. Over the next two years, Patsy remodeled, decorated to the tune of an additional $700,000. They were doing all right in the money department. The average price of a home in this neighborhood today, according to real estate apps like Trulia and Realtor.com, is somewhere between 2 and $3 million. The former seven-bedroom, eight-bath Ramsey home is valued at just over $3 million right now. Built in the 1920s, exquisitely landscaped, large private backyard, has Three fireplaces, a master suite that takes up the entire top floor of the two-story home that also features a large basement level. The house was so nice, the Ramsey family had it listed on the Boulder Christmas tour, as well as on a regular home tour in Boulder when people visited, and between 1,500 to 2,000 guests would visit each year. Patsy would would take him a, uh, would meet him at the door with Jean Benet and Burke at her side, each of them wearing perfect little matching sweaters. You know that they had to wear to make mama happy. In 1996, John had just turned 53. He'd just gotten uh, a six-figure work bonus days earlier. He was married to a 40-year-old former beauty queen. He was crushing life. Not only did he and his model Stepford Wife-type family have an amazing home in Boulder, they also had a stunning summer home, Lake Michigan, in the 2,500-person picturesque uh, little lake town of uh, Charlevoix, situated between Lake Michigan and the western end of Lake Charlevoix, which drains into Lake Michigan through the Short Round Lake Pine River complex in the heart of downtown Charlevoix, a little summer resort town. Uh, It's been that way since the 1880s. Their waterfront home was 1,731 square feet, four bedroom, four and a half baths, valued at over $330,000 at the time, valued at around a million dollars now. The Ramseys also maintained a third residence in Atlanta, Georgia, where they'd lived before moving to Boulder. They drove luxury cars, had a boat. John had two separate private planes. They used his pilot license to fly around in. They had Big parties they would throw, some of which would cost upwards of $30,000 and have actors performing parts. I mean, crushing it, especially for Boulder. Boulder, Colorado still didn't even have 100,000 people in it in 1996. It only has around 110,000 now. The metro area has around 300,000. It's mostly known as the home of Colorado's biggest university, the University of Colorado, the Buffaloes. And the Ramses were kind of a big deal in Boulder. You know, you're going to have less members of the upper crust in a place like Boulder than you're going to have in some place like San Francisco or Manhattan. They were rich, attractive, had two well-behaved, beautiful kids. Burke was shy and quiet. Little Jean Bonnet was the exact opposite. By the age of six, she'd already won America's uh, Royal Miss, Little Miss Charlevoix, Little Miss Colorado, Colorado State All-Star Kids cover girl, the crown of national tiny Miss Beauty, and more. You watch videos. She seemed to love singing and dancing in public. Her tiny body exuded uh, charisma. She was a little star. Her dad was one of the city's rising business stars. Her mom was one of the town's premier socialites. And her brother, well, yeah, he was there too. He was nine and cute and he smiled nice uh, for all the family photos. If you were alive anywhere near the time of Jean Benet's short life, you'll probably remember uh, you know, some of Jean Benet's beauty pageant pictures on the covers of almost every grocery store tabloid there was. Week after week, month after month, year after year following her death, I still see her face at the grocery store. She was on the cover of something just a few weeks ago, some tabloid, and it's been over 20 years since her death. Her death fascinated America at a level comparable to Nicole Simpson or Kaylee Anthony, actually more. Nicole's probable killer, OJ Simpson, Kaylee's probable killer, Casey Anthony, done sucks on both of them. They got more media attention than John Bonet murder suspects, John, Patricia, Burke Ramsey, uh, and others. But as a homicide victim, I can't think of literally anyone who has gotten the same level of media exposure as John Bonet Ramsey. Not even Natalie Holloway, who'd infamously disappear almost a decade later in Aruba. Why did her case receive so much coverage? Well, partially because she was a little beauty pageant winner. Let's be honest. America covets its beautiful creatures more than those deemed not as attractive. Beautiful people make the covers of more magazines and tabloids than the ugly people, alive or dead, and they always will. Also, I think, uh, in my lifetime, at least, always because her, uh, also because her family was wealthy, Americans are endlessly fascinated by opulence. Those who live the lives so many of us will only dream about. No one would give two fucks about the Kardashians if they were poor and ugly. I mean, wealth is a big part of the American dream, is it not? When you hear examples of people making it, it's never tales about them living modestly, barely paying their bills, but being great parents, being heavily involved in their community, you know, doing hands-on charity work. No, it's tales of people coming from nothing, ending up rich as fuck, and maybe doing some good with that money. Money, we love money here in America. I love money. I love the freedom it can give you. I get it. And also part of the fascination surrounding the murder of John Bonet has to do with children's beauty pageants. How could it not? Back in 1996, over a decade before shows like the At Best Creepy and at worst, Softcore Pedophile Porn, Toddlers and Tiaras, and the So Bad I Wondered if It Was a Possible Sign of an Impending Apocalypse the first time I heard about it. Here comes Honey Boo Boo. Very few people even knew these pageants existed. Seeing a 60, Seeing a six-year-old girl decked out in makeup and outfits that would seem, uh, you know, possibly overly sexual if they were worn by a 16-year-old girl captured the public's attention. It became fascinating because it's so, what the fuck is going on here? It's confusing. Why is this happening? Who dresses their kindergartner like that? Why was your mom so into her being a model at such a young age? And I mean, seriously, who does that? Who dresses up their six-year-old in bright red lipstick, teases out their hair, puts tons of foundation, mascara, and eyeliner on their face, you know, dressing him up in essentially a miniskirt and cowboy boots and a tight tank top. And as they're dancing and singing for an audience of grownups, it's fucking weird. Also takes glamour shots where she's posing in obviously sexualized ways. Like if a photographer asked my 11-year-old daughter to pose in similar ways as I've seen uh, after doing this research, John Benet pose in, in glamour shots, I would have a little what the fuck are you doing, bud, conversation with that guy. Tell him he needs to leave right now unless he wants his camera and possibly parts of his perverted body are broken. Oh my heck! Oh my heck! Gets me fired up. But did her parents have anything to do with her murder? Maybe, maybe not. We'll look hard in both directions. Basic stats on child murder lean towards the likelihood that John Bonet was killed by someone within her own family, but the brutality of the crime points towards someone outside the home. It's a crazy case. And it only gets crazier the more you look at it. it Spawn dozens of books, documentaries, theories that range from a simple cover-up by rich parents to satanic child porn rings, of course. To John Bonnet being alive today and performing as pop star Katy Perry. Seriously, that's a that's a conspiracy. That's not just some of my tomfoolery. And yes, we will for sure have an idiot to the internet segment today. Uh, before we dive into a timeline exploration of this case, let's take a quick look at some context. Starting with kitty pageant culture. Then a quick little bio for each member of the Boulder Ramsey household. Child pageantry in America consists of about 250,000 children who compete in around 5,000 pageants nationwide each year. That makes uh, almost 14 pageants for kids a day. Oh oh my heck, what the fudge? Stinking golly dagnabbit. I hope that disturbs you as much as it does me because uh, so many of us straight dudes are biologically hardwired to want to see women naked more than we want to see food on our table or the sun keep coming up. We already have more than enough sexualization in society, right? Here are some porn stats I found. Porn sites attract more visitors each month than Amazon and Netflix combined. 30% of all internet content is porn. 56% of divorces involve one spouse having an obsessive interest in online porn. 20% of all mobile web searches are porn. The world in general already struggles with giving women more than just a sexual identity because most of this porn is naked women. So why the fuck would any parent in the right mind want to push their daughter into already being physically objectified when she's only six years old? I know that's not how they see it, but that is how it's perceived by creeps, right? She's going to have to deal with that shit soon enough. Give her a few years to enjoy her childhood first. Let her, let her fart and fucking pick her nose and, you know, show up smelling like fucking hot garbage, you know, with dirt on her face and scraped up knees because she tried doing some sick ass trick on her fucking bike. Let her, let her just be a kid, but I digress. Back to beauty pageants. Beauty pageants for adult women have existed in one form or another for centuries. For example, medieval Brits celebrated May Day by having a little, uh, who looks the hottest in a long ass form fitting, kind of, or form hiding, I guess more, poofy white dress show and picking a May queen. Pageants got going in America in the mid 19th century. Famous circus entrepreneur, businessman, all around exploitation machine, hopefully future suck, P.T. Barnum organized America's first beauty pageant for adult women in 1854, and it did not go well. The public protested. Parading women out in front of men, you know, and judging them on their looks was immoral, indecent. It caused quite the kerfluffle. Instead of giving up on the whole idea of judging human beings and meat sacks solely on their physical attractiveness, Barnum thought, well, if they won't let me exploit grown-ass women, what if I could exploit some babies? In the very next year, in 1855, a national contest Barnum orchestrated called the National Baby Show attracted 143 child contestants and 61,000 viewers. And then baby parades soon became all the rage around the country in the coming decades. And there are still baby pageants today. Quick Google search, took me to sunburstbeauty.com. Uh, John, John Bonet did some sunburst beauty pageants and they have competitions for girls from the age of just popped out of my mom's baby hole to the age of 27. And that's it, that's it. Nothing for those 28 and up. I guess, I guess 28 is, is ancient in the pageant world. Just boo! Get that 28-year-old puss off the stage. We came here to see some hot kids. If you go to a child or baby pageant, by the way, I highly encourage you to use the word hot as much as possible and sexy. All right? If they don't want a dude showing up by himself, wearing aviator sunglasses indoors and having his hands in his pockets all the time, standing in the back of the room, just yelling shit like, hell yeah, look at all those hot-ass kids. Look at those hot-ass babies. That's what I'm talking about say sexy a lot, You're hot damn, t- never seen so many sexy kids in one hotel, woo, look at all those hot sexy babies, if they don't want that, they can stop having fucking weird pageants, that'll fucking shut it down, Annette Dory, an expert on baby contests, explained that at many of these baby pageants, babies have been uh, uh, historically, you know, like uh, the early ones, stripped naked and judged by physicians according to a meticulous point system, like they used in cattle judging, that's what the 19th century baby pageants were, Just that's cool, yeah, you know, it's not fucked up at all. It's, hey, lady, come grab your D-grade baby. Get the hell out of here. Where you scare somebody. It's a beauty pageant, not an audition for a Halloween house of whores. Why don't you take your little sack of fugly, sneak out the back. You know, why don't you scare our hot, sexy babies? This type of baby contest went on hiatus in the 1950s, as did baby parades. Why? Because people finally decided it's pretty fucked up. Start grading meat sacks on their physical appearance when they're still in diapers. <laughs> JK, they didn't care about that at all. Uh, kids started getting polio. And events where uh, large groups of random children would needlessly congregate in public started to seem like a like a dumb idea. Polio and other various, you know, uh, communicable diseases, uh, pre-vaccine days. Luckily, the polio vaccine became widely available in the late 50s. And wouldn't you know it, by 1961, the youth of America were healthy enough to once again participate in pageants. In 1961, America's first official child beauty pageant got going. Yeah, Marshall's, Marshall's hot kids on the stage. Uh, Palisades Amusement Park in Palisades, New Jersey, started holding a weekly contest throughout the summer from 1961 to 1971 called Little Miss America. The contest name was meant to evoke the adult Miss America pageant, which had been running since 1921, but actually was not affiliated with it. And Little Miss America was a big hit. It drew roughly 6,000 competitors each week. And I'm guessing at least twice that many pedophiles. The massive success of the Little Miss America pageants did not go unnoticed by other people who like to make money and or work with, with hot kids. Our regional, (laughs) so creepy, regional child beauty pageants began to spring up unlike Little Miss America, which was free to enter and had no dress requirements or talent competition. These new competitions mimicked adult pageants more, offering contestants the chance to compete in categories like talent and party wear. These pageants developed into various children pageants that we know and hate today. Uh, The worst one I found, did you know that there is now an annual pageant in Las Vegas for eight to 13 year old girls called LMH Hoedown? Yep, the Little Miss Hustler Hoedown. One of the categories, pole fitness, mm -hmm, because of all the pole fitness classes, nine-year-olds in G-strings doing stripper moves in front of middle-aged dudes, uh, judges, an audience of primarily men who are allowed to take as many pictures as they want, as long as the flash turned off. That's fine. Just, you know, no flash. That's the only rule. Kids' crotch shots? Ah, That's fine. Just no flash. There's also a tease competition where the kids dance on a catwalk and take off their clothes. They go all the way down to their underwear, and because they're kids, it's not illegal for them to go topless. So they can even take off their tops, and they do. And they end up bare chested in front of these fucking dudes. It's gross. And if you don't believe that it's real, go ahead and check it out for yourself. Go to their website. It's www.getthefuckoutofhere. No, not yet. None of that stuff is happening yet. Hopefully it never will. I hope you're hope you're outraged for a moment there. Uh, if you heard all of that and you didn't think it was a big deal, uh, I want you to focus less on podcasts. And I want you to focus a lot more on therapy. If you heard all that and you're like, ah, fucking, uh, where can I get my ticket? I want you to get some help. I want you to get some real help. And are and, and pageants as bad as all that? No, I, I, not, I guess. I mean, I know, I'm sure a lot of the people running them have a completely different look at it, but I do look at it like you're just like advertising your kid for fucking pedophiles. When you're dressing them up in clothes that, I don't know how some of these people rationalize them not being sexually provocative. I mean, it's, it really, and I'm not a prude, but I swear to God, a lot of these outfits, if Monroe was wearing them at 16, I'd be like, whoa, where where are you going? Uh, I thought you were going to school, not a nightclub. Ugh. Okay, now that we're on with a little bit of knowledge about the kitty porn, I mean, kitty pageant world, let's take a look at the Ramses. To understand the murder of Jean Bonet Ramsey, we first have to understand the fam. Let's start with Jean Bonnet. Jean Bonnet Patricia Ramsey was born on August 6, 1990, in Atlanta, Georgia. She would be uh, just barely 29 years old today if she was still alive. So crazy. She would die so young that if she died today, uh, she'd still be young. And she died over 20 years ago. She was a daughter of a beauty queen, the niece of another beauty queen. She's the daughter of Patsy and John. John Bonnet was named after a feminized version of her father's first and middle names, John Bennett, also uh, given her mother's name as a middle name, Bennett Patricia Ramsey. Man, these people, a uh, little, little, little vain, I feel like. That's always weird. I never understood that. The need to put your name in the names of your kids. I must make another me. I'm the son of a Dan. Uh, neither one of my kids have names that have, uh, you know, anything to do with my first name or middle name, which is Brent. Neither one of my kids are named after anyone in my family, but I, but I guess I do have my last name, which, you know, if i to be honest, I like, but if it was culturally normal to give kids different last names, I wouldn't, I fucking, I wouldn't care to me. Researching this, it felt like Patricia wanted to like clone herself, right? Her daughter has her name as her middle name. And since she did pageants, you know, she makes her daughter do pageants. She seems just hyper, hyper focused on her daughter. Daughter seemed like more like a doll to her than a, than a human being. Uh, you know, I mean, clearly you're getting pushed hard in that direction when you doing this stuff at the age of like four, I think even younger, three, four, five. I mean, you know, she was a pageant girl raised by a pageant mom and her life revolved around rehearsals, costumes, getting made up to look pretty and competing, not, uh, you know, doing typical kid stuff. Uh, it's like she was more of like a show dog or show pony than a human being. Jean Bonnet was the youngest of two children, at least on her mother's side. Her brother Burke was nine at the time of her murder, was three years older. By age six, Jean Binet had already won multiple national pageant titles. Thanks thanks to her bouncy blonde hair, naturally poised smile, glittery costumes. Check out the resume of a girl who only lived for less than six and a half years on this planet. This is a partial list. Colorado State All-Star Kids Pageant, April 94. Little Miss Charlevoix, uh, July 94. Miss Colorado Sunburst, there's that Sunburst one, October 95. America's Royale, Tiny Miss, Division Title, July 96. America's Royale Miss Colorado Dream Queen, July 96. I guess it's the same one. Sunburst National Pageant, second place, August 96. Colorado's Little Miss Christmas, December 17th, 96. Colorado's All Stars Christmas Pageant, Medal for Talent, just a few days before she died, December 22nd, 96. Uh, and unfortunately, there's not a lot else to say when it comes to John Bonet's life since it was, you know, very short. On the surface, she seemed outgoing and confident was given a plush and comfortable life. In one documentary, I saw her room, her bedroom, and she had her own bathroom. She had a, her own Christmas tree right before the holidays, a giant virtually life-size Santa doll on this little kind of uh, couch she had in a room. Uh, looked like she was given whatever she wanted, tons and tons of toys. She seemed to be the center of her parents' worlds. Very, very privileged childhood before such a tragic end. I, I know a lot of comedians in New York who would love to live in an apartment the size of Bonnet's old bedroom. They'd also love to be able to furnish that apartment with the same budget. That was clearly used to furnish her room now more on her parents starting with her father john john bennett ramsey born december 7th 1943 lincoln nebraska ramsey moved with his family to okamos michigan at the age of 14 his father jay was a decorated world war ii pilot before becoming a director of the michigan aeronautics commission as a teenager ramsey competed in cross country played the band nurtured a love of aviation he inherited from his father He joined ROTC at Michigan State University, where he also met his first wife, Lucinda Cindy Lupash, uh, Cindy Lou. The two college sweethearts were married in 1966, moved to the Philippines, where Ramsey spent two years as a Navy pilot. Shortly after they returned to Michigan, Cindy gave birth to their first daughter, Elizabeth, in July of 69. Ramsey earned a master's degree in marketing from Michigan State in 71, got a job in Michigan. The couple had their second child, another daughter, Melinda, in 72. After working locally for two years, John accepted an Atlanta sales job with an electronics engineering company in 73 before eventually striking out on his own. He and his wife had their third child, John Andrew, in 1976 before divorcing in 1978. And in the summer of 79, 35-year-old John met 22-year-old 1977 Miss Virginia, uh, Patricia Ann Pa, rebounding with with a model 13 years younger. I'm sure his ex Cindy loved that. I think it was, and I, and I have in my notes, Miss Virginia, it may be West Virginia. It's not a, it's not a crucial detail to this narrative. It may be 1977, uh, Miss West Virginia, because uh, that is where she grew up. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I'm sure Cindy loved that. I'm sure she was thrilled to drop her kids off with an ex-husband and his hot young model wife. On November 15th, 1980, John and Patricia Ann, who would go by Patsy, got married. They would continue to live in Atlanta near John's ex. And apparently they did get along pretty well. Uh, For the next six years, they fucked so, so much. You know they did. John didn't marry a young model, mostly for conversation. I mean, let's be honest. He didn't. You know he didn't. Then on January 27th, 1987, Patricia gave birth to son Burke, John's fourth child and second son. In 1987, Ramsey also founded a tech firm called Advanced Products Group in Roswell, suburb of Atlanta. Business boomed. A year later, 1989, or two years later, excuse me, 1989... Uh, Advanced products merged with CAD, CAD Sources Incorporated of uh, Piscataway, New Jersey, and CAD Distributors Incorporated of Boulder, Colorado, to form Access Graphics, a computer distribution corporation that would be headquartered in Boulder. Access Graphics was a business-to-business wholesaler buying computer systems from manufacturers, then reselling them to other companies. I would talk a little more about it in detail, but I don't want to put everyone to sleep. They, they, They made a lot of money doing boring shit. By 1996, the year of John Bonet's murder, the company would employ about 600 techies worldwide. By about 350, those people would work at the Boulder headquarters. Then, on August 6, 1990, John and Patsy had the little girl Mrs. Ramsey had dreamed of. John Benet in Atlanta. John's third daughter, Patsy's first, and within a year of John Bonet's birth in 1991, the family moves to Boulder so John could run the growing company he was president and CEO of, be present at the headquarters. Also in 91, 47-year-old John sells Access Graphics to Lockheed Martin. An American global aerospace, defense, security, and advanced technologies company. Major part of the military industrial complex. Illuminati! Lockheed kept him on to run the company. Life is going very well. His company's growing. He's making stacks and stacks of cash. He and his ex-wife are amicable. He sees his kids often. Then in January of 92, tragedy strikes. John's oldest daughter, Elizabeth, uh, dies suddenly in a tragic car accident in Chicago at the age of 22. Less than 18 months after the birth of John Bonet. For the next four years, following Elizabeth's death, life would spare John any additional hardships. John returned to work quickly following his daughter's death, continued to grow his company. John's first two kids remained healthy, uh, or, or, his, or his most, re- yeah, his first two kids remained healthy, and he traveled to Atlanta's office. He couldn't see them, and, it, and his family in Boulder thrived. Burke was doing well in grade school. John Bonet was rocking the pageant scene. Patsy stayed at home, ran the family social life. John worked lots of hours, continuing to make a lot of money. By 1996, the family's net worth was estimated at $6.4 million. And that's 1996 money, crushing it. By 1996, uh, John also owned two planes that he flew himself, three homes, beginning to negotiate another buyout for his company. General Electric was getting ready to buy access graphics from Lockheed Martin for a lot of cash. He'd be getting an untold amount of money in that sale. He was rich, it looked like he was gonna be wealthy soon. Personality-wise, he was described by friends as exceedingly quiet, calm, and collected. According to family friends, John murdering anyone, especially his daughter in a fit of rage, uh, you know one of the many theories proposed, highly unlikely. He only ever seemed to lose his temper about money. And check this out. This is so sad to me. The Daily Camera, Boulder's newspaper, published an article about John's business success just five days before John Bonet's murder on December 21st, 1996. The headline read, Access Celebrates $1 Billion Mark. There's a picture of John sitting at his desk looking so happy, so proud. And in less than a week, his life would completely unravel. Photos like that always weird me out, right? Where, you know, obviously with time elapsing, you know that something really bad happened not long after that photo. But in that photo, the person being photographed has no fucking idea, right? In this particular photo, life was going so, so well. And then we know, man, just days later, everything went to shit. Man, you could easily drive yourself insane thinking about things like that, you know? how, uh, uh, I think those photos creep me out that, you know, because I think about that for me, that's what we all do. We, we personalize this stuff and I'm like, well, shit, things are going well now today. Today's a, uh, a great day for me. What's going to happen tomorrow? What's gonna happen the day after that? Ah, I think it's good to remind yourself. Uh, if you spiral on that is that things also can go a lot better. And, and most of the time, the overwhelming majority of the time, things don't fall apart tomorrow. Okay, anyway, here's a little excerpt from that article. When Boulder-based computer distributor Access Graphics Incorporated passed the $1 billion mark in 1996 revenues, it tossed a luncheon party at the Hotel Boulderado on Friday. A Dixieland jazz band made the rounds at Access Boulder offices Friday morning to announce the celebration later played at the Boulderado. John Ramsey, president of Access Graphics, thanked about 300 employees at the gathering, told them it couldn't have happened without them. The $1 billion in sales is about a 25% increase over the 800 million the company posted last year and Ramsey foresees continued growth. Again, man, future was looking bright. Sky was looking blue. Oof, Uh, yeah, five days before his daughter gets killed. On or around the 21st, Lockheed Martin also gave John a Christmas bonus of $118,000. Papa Ramsey, rich, even-tempered, super successful computer guy in charge of a growing corporation, a business star in Boulder, Making somewhere between, oh my heck, that's a lot of gosh darn money, and what the fudge? What could you even buy with all that for flip's sake? And he had a hot wife 13 years younger than him. Not bad, not bad. Now let's meet his second wife, Patricia Ann Ramsey, called Patsy by her friends and family. Born December 29th, 1956, in the tiny 450-person town of Gilbert, West Virginia. Gilbert is just 14 miles from the Hatfield Cemetery of the Hatfield-McCoy feud fame. (laughs) Hog folk, dog folk, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gilbert's just a few miles from where the Hatfields used to fight the McCoys on the West Virginia-Kentucky border. All right, Patsy would be the oldest of three girls born to Donald and Nedra Pa. Whew, Nedra. Yikes. It's a rough name. Not a, not a sexy name. Sorry to the Nedras, listen. No word about Mama Nedra competing in any pageants. Probably wasn't allowed to sign up with that name. Hi, I'm Nedra. I'm here to sign up for the beauty pageant. <laughs> no, you're, no, you're not. Now we just closed. We just closed right now, just right now when you walked up, when we uh, when we heard that your name was Lady Ned. We have a no Lady Ned rule here at the pageants. According to a Washington Post article as a young girl, Mrs. Ramsey developed a reputation as being a straight arrow leader who studied hard, enjoyed performing. She was, uh, She liked to do drama, frequently thought of others first. In high school, Mrs. Ramsey discovered her love of beauty pageants, excuse me, becoming runner up, first runner up in the Miss Teenage West Virginia. And here we go. Here comes a crazy. She began competing for the ultimate crown of Miss America a few years later at West Virginia University, where she belonged to the Alpha Z Delta sorority. She stopped thinking of others first and stopped talking to ugly people altogether. Uh, I don't know if that to be true, actually. Uh, she was runner up in two preliminary competitions before winning the Miss, Miss West Virginia title. Okay, so it was West Virginia. There we go. As a sophomore in 1977, at the national pageant, she took home a talent award and a $2,000 scholarship. Her younger sister, Pamela, was also crowned Miss West Virginia in 1980. Oh, the paws dominating that. Nedra's daughters. Look at little, fucking little Lady Ned's offspring crushing those beauty pageants. That was the first time a set of sisters had won the state title. Before that, 1979, she graduated with a degree in journalism, marketing, moved to Atlanta where mutual friends quickly introduced her to John Ramsey and then she would marry him the next year. Things moved fast. Patsy was a Southern belle and a socialite. She made sure that both of John's daughters from his first marriage were given lavish birthday parties. She did seem like a good stepmom Coming from Gilbert, which is pretty damn podunk. She must have loved being a young, rich socialite living in hot Atlanta. She became involved in numerous charities like some uh, like a ladies charity called Society, T-E-A. She was also a dedicated volunteer at the Women's Junior League. Patricia was also way into her daughter's pageant career. She was a total pageant mom. It was her thing. She loved dressing John Bonet up, doing her hair, putting her in pageant clothes, hiring coaches, talking to other pageant moms. Which again makes me feel like she thought of John Bonnet more as more of a toy doll than a daughter. So she was like a living, breathing Barbie. Sure, she loved her, but still weird to me. Neighborwood later recalled at one time John Bonnet came downstairs as Patsy was having a conversation with a neighbor. Another neighbor, the neighbor was shocked because Jean Bonnet suddenly had bleached blonde hair. When the last time the neighbor had seen her, her hair was clearly light brown. When this neighbor asked Patsy about it, she said it was just from the sun in Michigan. Nope. Patsy was dyeing her daughter's hair from the time John Bonnet was five years old. Getting that hair dyed. Blonde, because you got to be prettier. Who's going to love you if you're not pretty? In 1993, Patsy was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. It uh, was in remission by 1995. Uh, even rich, pretty people can get sick. Sad reminder that you can't get to a place in life where you're just insulated from anything bad happening to you. That's kind of the story, too. Maybe that's another reason the story fascinated and continues to fascinate the general public. It's a reminder that no matter how much ass you're kicking in life, life can still motherfuck you. Happy Thoughts! My, my heck, my heck, I apologies for the language, and that was quite dark. Uh, now let's talk about Patsy's first child, John Bonet's older brother, Burke. Burke Hamilton Ramsey. That's a regal name. Burke Hamilton Ramsey. Born on January 27th, 1987 in Atlanta, Georgia. I feel like some trumpets went off when he was born. I present you, Burke Hamilton Ramsey. Uh, we don't know a ton about him, other than he wasn't cute enough to compete in little boy pageants, so mom probably loved him less. I mean, that, that's how it works, right? Right? I, I don't know. Actually, some do think that he was the least favorite, and jealousy may have fueled an accidental murder. After a childhood of wealth, Burke Ramsey had his life thrown into chaos for years after his sister's murder, probably because at nine, he was a murder suspect. The subsequent extensive publicity of his sister's murder was re- reportedly a chaotic nightmare for Burke. Of course it was. I watched an interview with his dad, John, conducted years after John Bonet's murder, where he said that immediately after the murder, they pulled Burke from school for a while, made sure to limit his exposure to paparazzi and just, you know, socialization in general, keep away from nosy neighbors, prying eyes, tried hard to protect him from the media circus, you know, that uh, you know, quickly enveloped them when they became suspects. And then the first time they let Burke go to the grocery store after his sister's death, months later, he sees a tabloid cover with his sister's picture on it and a headline accusing him of murdering her. Fuck. He was devastated. Of course he was. Uh, Burke's relationship with his sister was less than perfect, as many sibling relationships are, to be fair. He may, he may have had a little more anger towards his little sister than, uh, than some big brothers. Family friend and photographer Judith Miller would later say that Patsy told her Burke had actually, uh, actually struck Jean Benet in the face with a golf club a year and a half prior to her murder, hard enough for her to uh, need stitches. She had to get a small cosmetic procedure from the plastic surgeon to avoid scarring. Ma- Mama can't have a busted up Barbie doll. Got to get that little face ready for the camera. Who's going to love you? Burke and the family said it was an accident. Maybe it was. But later, Patsy would try and change the dates attached to this story, saying that Burke was five or six years old. When he did it, he was actually seven. So that's, you know, just an odd detail. Maybe she forgot, maybe not a big deal. Or maybe Burke, you know, hated his sister. And it was getting increasingly violent towards her. Judith Phillips, a Ramsey friend for more than 10 years, a local photographer, said this about the golf club incident many years later. I think Burke had a bad temper. It's like he had a chip on his shoulder. He had hit John Binet before the murder. I would have to say it was probably a year and a half. They were playing in the yard and apparently he hit her with the golf club right here, points to the area under her eye. She, Patsy, said the kids were playing, but Burke lost his temper and hit her with a golf club. Could he have lost his temper again and hit her with something else and killed her in 1996? And then could the family have tried to stage another crime scene or stay, you know, make it look like a different type of crime, stage a crime scene to make it look like an intruder did it? That is a popular theory. Also, former New York City prosecutor, retired FBI supervisory special agent and profiler, Jim Clemente, and former New Scotland Yard criminal behavioral analysis, Laura Richards, who examined the John Bonet case for a 2016, uh, 2016 CBS docu-series, discovered during their investigation that apparently Burke had committed what they called some scatological infractions as a child. Scatological infractions, meaning that he uh, spread feces, his own, around the Ramsey's bathroom, and uh, even around uh, John JonBenet's bedroom time or two. Peanut butter, showbiz. That's how they do it in Hollywood. Spreading his shit on the walls of his sister's room. Yikes. Oh, my heck. That seems pretty hateful. My little sister Donna annoyed the shit out of me all the time growing up, but I never hit her in the face with a blunt instrument hard enough to send her to the doctor, and I definitely didn't literally uh, or didn't smear literal shit on the walls of her room. That's uh, that's some next-level anger. The same investigators also watched a video of Burke with the therapist shortly after his sister's death, and they were bothered by how just uh, relaxed he was when he was asked if he was worried about a killer, or his sister's killer, specifically coming for him. And uh, he wasn't worried at all. He said, like, no, I'm just going to deal with my life. He's very calm. And, you know, why would he be worried about a killer coming for him if he was the killer? But I'm get ahead of myself? We'll talk about uh, who may have killed John Binet and why soon enough and in detail. Overall, Burke seemed to be a pretty well-behaved kid when he wasn't whacking his sister in the face with a golf club or wiping his shit on the walls of her bedroom. And now that we know a little bit about the family, let's get into today's timeline. Starting just a few days before jean Bonet's murder, right after a word from today's first sponsor. Today's Time Stuck is brought to you by Steph Cox You Might Be a Killer World Tour. Get your tickets now. Steph will be in Santa Fe, New Mexico on October 32nd at the Devil's Green Casino and Brothel. He'll be in London, England on June 43rd, Sir Lacelot Pub and Crematorium. He'll be in Calgary, Canada, January 75th at the Well-Hung Moose Strip Club and Massage Parlor. And he's coming to Las Vegas, Nevada on March 40th back at the world-famous Chuckle Slut. Come here, the new Steph Cox-Curvy material. If your uncle is your father, brother, cousin, and grandpa, and your mom is also your niece and father and you were raised to think safe sex was when you dug up the body before it had been dead for a week, you might be a killer. And of course, come and hear some of the classics. If your dad liked to play baseball with you growing up, but your head was the ball, and only he ever got to swing the bat, you might be a killer. Get your tickets now. And of course, that is not today's sponsor. That's uh, that's Seth Coxcurry from the Confession Killer Suck. No, today's Time Suck is sponsored today by Quip. My toothbrush buddies, my tooth friends. No, my teeth friends. That sounds better. My teeth friends. My teeth guardians. That sounds sounds best. My Quip teeth guardians. The best way to ease back into a post-summer routine? Simplify the morning and evenings with an electric toothbrush from Quip. Time Sonic Vibrations offer an effective clean that's gentle on your sensitive gums in just two minutes twice a day. And the multi-use cover works as a stand, mounts to mirrors, putting brush in fresh, fresh, yeah, front. There we go. Let's put, let's put brush in front and center in your bathroom. Better yet, the lightweight compact design means you can bring it along with you on those last summer weekend getaways. And brush heads automatically delivered on a dentist recommended schedule every three months for just five bucks. I just switched mine out, my quip about a week ago, Uh, making it easy to stay committed to your oral, oral health. I love how my Quip is no bigger than a non-battery uh, powered toothbrush, too. That's one of my favorite things. It takes up no extra space. And it's a regular, you know, toothbrush that will not do nearly as good a job. No extra space in my already crowded luggage. And it gets my chompers so much wider. Good job, Quip scientists. I imagine the Quip scientists having, having teeth as wide as their lab coats. I love Quip, and it's perfect for getting back into a new, clean teeth routine. It's easy. Quip starts at just 25 bucks, and if you go to uh, go to getquip.com slash timesuck, Right now, you can get your first refill pack for free, free. That's your first refill pack free at getquip dot com slash timesuck. Get equipped, meat sacks. Link in the episode description. Timesuck timeline. Right now. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a timesuck timeline. December twenty second, nineteen ninety six. Jean Bonet appeared at her last beauty pageant, and her family put out their annual Christmas letter. It ended with Jean Bonnet is enjoying her first year in real school. Kindergarten and the core knowledge program is fast paced and five full days a week. She has already been moved ahead to the first grade math. She continues to enjoy participating in talent and modeling pageants. She was named America's Royale Tiny Miss last summer and is Colorado's Little Miss Christmas. Her teacher says she is so outgoing that she'll never have trouble delivering an oral book report. Merry Christmas and much love, the Ramses. Uh, earlier, they wrote a less flattering message about their son, Burke, in the Christmas letter, writing, Burke is doing very well. He hasn't hit anyone with a golf club all year and he has barely smeared his feces on anything. He wiped down a few of John Bonnet's dolls in a dollhouse with the tiniest bit of poop and may have rubbed a little bit on our pillows around Thanksgiving, but that's it. We're super proud of him. Uh, now they had nice things to say about Burke as well. Uh, on December 23rd, the Ramses hosted a Christmas party where approximately 30 guests attended, including former journalism professor Bill McReynolds, who played Santa Claus. This poor bastard would end up being a suspect in all of this, the suspect I feel the sorriest for in some ways. The next day, Christmas Eve, was a busy day for the Ramses as well. An article appeared in the Boulder Daily Camera regarding the success of the Ramsey Christmas party the day before. It's be a slow news day. According to various reports, Jean Bonnet played at her friend Megan Costanek's house that day. The Ramseys also attended the Twilight Service that night at St. John's Episcopal Church in Boulder. By 9 p.m., the kids had been sent to gather gifts that were stashed in a hardly used basement room, and John Ramsey retrieved a brand new Silver Girls bike stored in neighbor Joe Barnhill's garage, placed it under the Christmas tree for Jean Bonnet. Then on Christmas Day 1996, Jean Bonnet received her bike and her other gifts. Of course, she was pumped. And I imagine Patsy, uh, you know, immediately talked to her about how careful she needed to be, right? Had to be very careful. Always wear a helmet on that bike, elbow pads, knee pads, wrist guards, riding gloves. God forbid she crash and skin a knee, get some sort of scar. <laughs> what will the judges think? You won't be as pretty. Around noon and Christmas, John left for the airfield to check on one of his planes. He returned between 2 and 3 p.m. Around 5 or 6 p.m., the Ramseys left for a Christmas party at Fleet and Priscilla White's home. It was reported that nothing out of the ordinary happened to this party. Fleet would soon become another suspect in the murder. Many, many suspects. Fleet also has the most stereotypical rich white guy name in history. Fleet White. And of course, his wife is named Priscilla. A guy named Fleet doesn't marry a Nedra. No Lady Neds for old Fleet. Anyway, in the drive home from the party, Jean Bonet and her brother, Burke, fell asleep in the car. The Ramsays, before heading home, dropped gifts off at Stuart and Roxy Walker's house and then Glenn and Susan Stein's homes. So many rich white people. Stuart and Fleet. Surprised we haven't met an Archibald. Upon arriving home, John uh, put John Bonet to bed, played a game with Burke before Burke went to bed. John Bonet is last seen alive around 10 p.m., laying safely asleep in her bed. Lying safely asleep in her bed. Uh, John and Patsy went to bed, would later claim they were never awakened during the night. Ah, such a nightmare, if true. The next morning, around midnight, neighbor Scott Gibbons looked out his kitchen window at the Ramsey residence, observed the upper kitchen lights were on and dimmed low. Did this mean an intruder was in the house? Would an intruder turn on the lights if they were? I doubt it. Did it mean that someone from the Ramsey household was still awake? Nobody said they were. More likely, though, just only getting up for a snack, still winding down for the day, thinking about how to cover up a murder. At 2 a.m., another neighbor, Melody Stanton, allegedly hears a scream from within the Ramsey's home. Her husband then reportedly hears the sound of metal on concrete sometime after the scream. Years later, Melody would backtrack on that statement, stating that she actually heard the noise two nights prior, if at all. Memory, such a funny thing. It seems to be the most reliable right, uh, you know, uh, when you're closest to the event, time-wise. You know, closest to the incident you're trying to call recall, which just makes sense. Like if something happened to you a few hours ago, and you had to go give a police report about it an hour from now, don't you think that your report is going to be more accurate and if you had to describe what happened 10 years from now, that's a big problem with this investigation. People say one thing, years later, they say another. Yeah, we've learned about false memory syndrome multiple times here on the, uh, on the Suck. Memory, a very, very tricky thing. Things we think can be so real can be completely made up in our heads. The morning of December 26th, the family gets up at 5.30 a.m. They were supposed to fly to Charlevoix, Michigan for the little family vacation at the, one of the other homes. While Mr. Ramsey took a shower, Mrs. Ramsey put back on the same outfit she had on the night before, reapplied her makeup. That's what she would say. Find this a bit odd for a lady who liked to, uh, you know, show how together, uh, you know, put together she was. But they were going on vacation, so maybe she was in vacation mode and just didn't care. It does seem suspicious if you think that she could have been one of the uh, ones that did it or the one who did it. I found a few reports that said Patsy Ramsey also went to the second floor of her home to rinse out a pair of Jean Bonnet's jumpsuit pajamas that she had apparently soiled the night before. And went downstairs to the kitchen to make coffee. Uh, many have speculated that anger over John Binet's continual bedwetting led to Patsy's role in an accidental murder and then intentional cover-up. Uh, around 5.45 a.m., Mrs. Ramsey heads downstairs and reports finding a two-and-a-half-page note on a back staircase in the house. Patsy says she only initially read a bit of the note, read JonBenet had been kidnapped, was safe and unharmed, and then the kidnappers wanted $118,000 in cash. More on this crazy note in a bit. Upon reading part of that note, Patsy reportedly immediately screamed, proceeded to check John Bonet's room. She found it to be empty. After hearing Mrs. Ramsey scream, Mr. Ramsey ran downstairs, met Mrs. Ramsey in the stairwell. Together, they checked on their son who appeared to be asleep in his room. Mr. Ramsey then went downstairs to read the ransom note while Mrs. Ramsey immediately called the police. Patsy dials 911 at 5.52 a.m. She's understandably hysterical. Doesn't answer the operator's questions very well. Here's the short transcript of this 911 call. Patsy Ramsey starts with police. What's going on, ma'am? 755 15th Street. What's going on there, ma'am? We have a kidnapping. Hurry, please. Explain to me what's going on, okay? There, we we have a, there's a note left. And our, our daughter's gone. A note was left and your daughter's gone. Yes. How old is your daughter? She's six, six years old. She's blonde, six years old. She, she just won Colorado's Little Miss Christmas on December 17th. She got a medal for talent in the Colorado All-Star Christmas pageant just four days ago. Please help. We have a Michigan pageant in four days. You have to help me find, it. we have a hair bleaching appointment tomorrow. It's really hard to reschedule with Giorgio. Please, we we have rhythm work to go over. The choreographer is meeting us at noon. Play. How could you do this to me? Uh, I'm sorry, that was pretty gross. But I, I, had to, I had to fucking break it up. I knew going in that was tasteless, but I felt compelled to continue. I'll, you know what? I'll, I'll show myself out. I'll, I'll show myself out. Uh, all Patsy actually said was that she was six years old. She's blonde, six years old. Back back to the real transcript. <laughs> all right. How long ago was this? I, I, I don't know. I just got the note. My daughter's gone. Does it say who took her? What? Does it say who took her? No, I, I don't know. There's there's a ransom note here. It's a ransom note. It, it says SBTC, victory, please. Uh, okay, what's your name? Are you Ka- Patsy Ramsey? I'm the mother. Oh my God, please. Okay, I'm sending an officer over, okay? Please. Do you know how long she's been gone? No, I don't. Please, we just got up. She's not here. Oh my God, please. Okay, Call. please send somebody. I am, honey. Please take a deep breath. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Patsy, 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 Patsy. Patsy hangs up the phone, which many forensic psychologists have questioned. When you're in a situation like that, when your daughter has just been taken, you don't know who's in the house. You don't know if other members of your family are still in danger. The phone is your lifeline to the outside world. Why would you hang it up? However play devil's advocate, everyone handles tragedy and stress differently. If you're panicking, who knows what you're going to do? Also, we actually asked a couple of our law enforcement friends about 911 hangups, and they said it happens all the time. But check out this very interesting twist on the hang-up. Patsy puts down the phone because she thinks she's hung up the phone, but it didn't hang up all the way. The operator can still hear vaguely what's going on. No one is quite sure what happens after this because the tape is very fuzzy, but it's been the subject of a lot of investigation by everyone from the FBI to the Secret Service. The Boulder Police Department would later send this tape to a company called the Aerospace Corporation, which then analyzed it with super sophisticated sound enhancement equipment. Aerospace never releases its findings. The Jean Bonnet case is still open, technically in Boulder, so they still won't release it, but the National Enquirer supposedly got a hold of this audio footage and leaked it in 2003. And I know, I know. It's the National Enquirer. Just about the least reliable news outlet in the world. Not quite as bad as the Weekly World News and Tales of Bat Boy, but not good. However, Boulder's Daily Camera also reported on the Enhanced Audio right when the Inquirer leaked it and reported, quote, the general content of the transcript in the supermarket tabloid is accurate, according to sources familiar with the investigation. So I think it's definitely worth sharing this. Here is a transcript of what may have been said after Patsy thought she had hung up the phone. Patsy can then be heard saying, help me, Jesus, help me, Jesus. Then in the distance, there's another voice thought to be Jean Benet's brother, Burke. And this is very important. This voice says, please, what do I do? And then John Ramsey, you know, we think can be heard saying sharply to Burke, we're not speaking to you. And then Patty says, help me, Jesus, help me, Jesus. And then she may have also said, it's very tricky to properly uh, uh, decipher this, even for the uh, audio experts, but she may have also said, what did you do? Help me, Jesus. Then more clearly, Burke can be uh, heard saying, what did you find? This doesn't prove anything about who committed the actual murders, but the Ramsey would later tell the police that Burke was asleep the entire time. If they're lying about that, why? Furthermore, although the operator couldn't tell what they were saying uh, at the time without the enhanced audio, she would later report that the tone dramatically changed when Patsy thought the phone was hung up. Patsy was uh, no longer hysterically babbling, but talking quietly while John spoke clearly and deliberately, and Burke didn't seem scared or worried. In a recent CBS documentary, The Case of jean Bonnet Ramsey, this operator says that it sounded rehearsed and she wished initial lead investigators had heard her side of the story. Very interesting. Before we continue with the timeline of this case, let's look further into this ransom note. It's very odd. It may be the uh, most important clue in this whole case. For the sake of being thorough, I'm going to read the whole thing. Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign family faction like what small foreign faction uh no part of me believes for a second that's true two sentences in and this feels more like a nigerian email scam than it does a real ransom note you know just like some bullshit like we transfer can much monies into account please praise god have no time much of due to illness bank contact cannot take needed transfer could you help out of goodness heart and give us bank info for us to wire much funds to you If you could wire just a small amount of $1,000 U.S. to us to authorize transfer, we feel trust to wire you $1 million, knowing you are a good person of God. All right, back to the real note. We do respect your business, but not the country that it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed. And if you want to see her, no, if you want her to see 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account. uh, 100,000 will be in $100 bills and the remaining 18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure that you bring an adequate size attache to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to arrange an earlier delivery of the money and hence an earlier delivery pickup of your daughter. Any deviation of my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains for proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you not to provoke them. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as the police, FBI, etc., will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You will be scanned for electronic devices. And if any are found, she dies. I feel like the author should have led with any of those last uh, reasons and skipped the first stray dog part. It's a weird tonal shift, right? To open on nonsensical and then go, you know, very realistic. If we catch you whittling a small tugboat out of Balsa Wood by seashore, The carry handwritten note placed in Ziploc sandwich bag for it not to get wet and put it out to sea for perhaps one-legged pirate to find and try and kill us with cutlass sword or antique ship cannon. She dies. Also, don't call police. Make sure bills are unmarked. Nothing bigger than a 50. Don't leave home until all financial arrangements have been made or have been, you know, back to the real note again. You can try to deceive us, but be warned that we are familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good southern common sense of yours. It is up to you now, John. Victory. S-B-T-C. Okay, many investigators would go on to claim that the single best piece of evidence that ties Mrs. Ramsey to this crime is this ransom note. Mrs. Ramsey would flatly deny having anything to do with the note's creation. Obviously, she would do that whether she was, you know, innocent or guilty. As far as ransom notes go, this one is very long. Very verbose. In fact, it's one of the longest ransom notes in the history of kidnapping cases. It could have been just four sentences. We have the girl Withdraw $118,000 in unmarked non-sequential bills from the bank. Do not alert authorities if the girl dies. We will contact you between 8 and 10 tomorrow to tell you how to deliver the money to us. Why would someone take that much time to write out a ransom note in the home of someone whose daughter they just killed? And whoever did it, uh, wrote it, did write it in the Ramsey home. I mean, people believe, I mean, you know, some think that they wrote it beforehand, and brought it, but that would mean that they would have had to come in a previous time and and take the stationery from Patsy's notepad because the paper came from the house. That's definitive. That doesn't seem likely. The note was drafted on paper taken from the middle of a pad located within the Ramsey home, written with the pen found in the Ramsey home. The pen and the paper belonged to Patsy. Additional sheets were missing from the pad and were never located in the Ramsey home. Finally, there was another page in the pad that had Mr. and Mrs., I, comma, written on it, which may uh, have been an early false start, like a a start of a a rough draft of the ransom note. Based on a CBS documentary recreation of the note, it takes 21 minutes just to copy the entire note out by hand. And you would think it would have taken longer to write it initially because you'd have to think about what you're writing. Over 20 minutes is a long time just to chill out and write a note in an active crime scene when someone could walk up and catch you at any time. Someone coming in and taking Bonet from her bed and, as you'll see, never leaving the property with her, killing her, possibly sexually assaulting her, then sitting down and writing this note seems highly unlikely to me. Now let's talk about handwriting analysis. During the initial murder investigation in an attempt to determine who wrote the note, the Boulder Police Department and Boulder County District Attorney's Office consulted at least six different handwriting experts. All of these experts consulted the original ransom note and compared it to original handwriting samples from both Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey. Four of these experts were hired by the police. Two were hired by the Ramses. All six experts agreed that Mr. Ramsey could be eliminated as the author of the note. These same six consulted experts did not eliminate Mrs. Ramsey as the author of the ransom note. Their reaction was mixed. On a scale of one to five, with five being definitive elimination as the author of the note, the experts hired by the Ramses placed Mrs. Ramsey overall somewhere between a four and a 4.5. Describe the chance of Mrs. Ramsey being the author of the note as very low. The analysts hired by murder investigators, however, think Mrs. Ramsey might be the author. And and recently, in 2016, when a 2020 special aired 20 years after the murder, two additional analysts, Gideon Epstein and uh, Sina Wong, professional handwriting experts who have worked on hundreds of investigations, think that it is highly likely that Mrs. Ramsey wrote the ransom note. Sina Wong said it's highly probable that she wrote the ransom note. If she did write the note, does that mean that she killed her daughter? No, but it means she has something to do with it. At the very least, you knew who the fuck did. And if it wasn't her, very likely her husband or son. Also, an investigator closely involved with the testing of the ransom note said out of the 74 names submitted for testing, Patsy's handwriting was the only one that set off alarm bells. A Colorado Bureau of Investigation CBI report concluded there are indications that the author of the ransom note is uh, Patricia Ramsey, but the evidence falls short to support that definitive conclusion. Over 100 total samples of different people's handwriting were given to law enforcement investigators over the course of John Bonnet's initial homicide investigation. Every single one were proven as definitively not matching the note, except Patsy. Her handwriting sample was the one and only one that showed a result of inconclusive. couple more interesting points to be made about the note before we move on. Uh, and actually, really quick before I get to these posts, just remembering something I didn't even put in my notes uh, the, the, type of pen she used was a specific type of pen. It wasn't ballpoint that apparently makes it a little extra hard to get a definitive conclusion. So some of the handwriting and analysts think that that was what kind of masked it a little bit from being Patricia's is that it was just a type of pen that made certain kind of brush marks that, that make it a little harder to say for sure. It's this person. Okay. So more stuff about the note first, uh, John Ramsey was a well-known millionaire. Why would the kidnappers ask for $118,000? Why not a million? The amount of $118,000, you know, as, as we know now, that's the amount of his recent bonus and a strange amount to ask for. Not 100,000, not a million, not a quarter million, not even 120,000, 118. Feels fishy to me. Feels contrived. Also, the supposed kidnappers specifically asked Ramsey to take the money from his account. Why does that matter? Typically kidnappers, they don't give a shit how you get the money. They don't give you instructions how to get it. They just want you to give it to them. Another weird detail, according to experts, is the way the kidnappers describe themselves. Who calls themselves a small foreign faction? Yeah, like I said, it gives it, it, gives it a whole fucking Nigerian email scam vibe. If this faction was real and they were small, why would they want you to know they're small? It'd make more sense they, they want you to think that they're large, powerful, big. You know, try and seem more powerful, not less. The notes kind of sounds like something out of a 80s action or, you know, or 90s action movie. Like, like Die Hard. You know, John McClane trying to save everyone from the nefarious efforts of a small foreign faction. Hell-bent on destroying America! yippee kaye yay foreign faction! Now back to the timeline. After calling the police at 5.54 a.m., Patsy calls family and friends, both the White family and John and Barbara, Fernie. At around 6 a.m., the world's most Caucasian couple, Fleet and Priscilla White, arrive on the scene. I imagine both of them wearing silk ascots. They'd never seen Patsy so hysterical, flailing, collapsing, in sobs. John Ramsey wasn't known for displaying emotion. Fleet, who had done a lot of sailing with him, of course he had. And uh, rough weather, had admired his calm even in the worst storms, but he noticed John looked distraught as well. Around the same time, 5.59 a.m., Officer Rick French arrives on the scene, the first of many officers from the Boulder Police Department to respond to the 911 call. He immediately makes a cursory search at the home, finds no signs of forced entry. During his search, Officer Rick French goes to the basement, comes to a door secured by a wooden latch. Unbeknownst to him, Jean Bonnet's body lied directly behind it. Sadly, French walks away without opening it, if he would have opened it, he could have secured a crime scene. Someone could have been arrested. Not securing a crime scene really made this one a motherfucker to solve for later investigators. Uh, Fleet White also searching the house testified that when he began his search, the lights were already on in the basement and the door in the hallway leading to the basement. Wine cellar room was opened. Further testified that a window in the basement playroom was broken. Under the broken window, Mr. White states there was a suitcase along with a broken shard of glass. Now later it would be revealed that this window had been broken for some time and that the suitcase had also been there for some time Nothing that had happened the previous night, according to John Ramsey. We'll talk about this a little bit more. Again, suspicious. Uh, Mr. White also opened uh, the door to the wine cellar room, but he did not see anything inside because it was dark and he couldn't find the light switch. Between 6 a.m. and 8 a.m., four more officers arrived at the Ramsey residence. Policeman Carl uh, Veitch, Barry Weiss, or Weiss, Sue Barklow, and their supervisor, Sergeant Paul Reichenbach. jean Bonnet's parents now have a house full of people. Besides an increasing number of officers and family friends, the Reverend Roel Hoverstock from St. John's Episcopalian Church arrives around 7.15 a.m. just before Burke is taken to the White's house. Mary Lou, Jedimus, Grace, Morlock, Boulder PD victim advocates arrive at around 6.45 a.m. with bagels and coffee. Uh, the house is now loaded with people. People fucking up, but they're soon going to find out it's, an act, you know, it's, a, it's a fucking crime scene. It's a murder crime scene, but they don't know that yet. At 8.10 a.m., the first detectives on the case are Linda Arndt and Detective Fred Patterson who immediately began their investigation. The police are notified of the kidnappers' plans to call between 8 and 10 a.m. As per police procedure, the Ramsey's phones are tapped and the calls are monitored. But the small foreign faction never calls. And surprisingly enough, no one, including John and, and Patricia and Patsy, you know, ever mentioned the missing of the kidnappers' call window. Never bring it up. A few officers and investigators, in particular Detective Linda Arndt, notice how strange that is. They make a note of that. They note also that John and Patsy barely are in the same room together. To this day, Detective Arndt is convinced that someone in the family, probably John, killed John Bene. Around 10.30 a.m., that morning, Detective Arndt notices that John Ramsey goes missing for at least an hour, leaving the house to supposedly pick up the mail. Later determined this couldn't be true, given the family's mail was delivered to a slot in the front door. Why would he lie about that? What was he doing? Moving a body? 1 p.m., Detective Linda Arndt tells a resurfaced John Ramsey that the police will be conducting a full sweep of the house. John and Fleet uh, agree to join in. Good old, good old Fleet White. After John Ramsey moved his computer company from Atlanta, Georgia to Boulder in 91, the Whites and Ramseys found they had a lot in common. Fleet was also successful. He's a tycoon in the oil business. Of course he was. If, you, if you're Fleet White, you're not cleaning toilets at Burger King, you're making that oil money. Man, it's, it's a good name, solid, rich name. I wish I would have named both my kids Fleet White. Maybe change Kyler's name to Fleet White Cummins and encourage him to wear ascots. Change Monroe's name to Fleeter White Cummins, or maybe Fleetist, the fleetest White. She can wear mink coats even in the summer, a lot of pearls, diamonds, long silk gloves. Father, what's for dinner? Caviar Fleet, you know that. Monday is always caviar night. Monday's caviar, Tuesday is lobster. Wednesday is steak, and the rest of the week, it's whatever gets flown in fresh from Paris. Dinner will be served in plates of gold and the food will be chewed by servants and then spit into your mouths. My boy Fleet and my daughter Fleetist not going to chew their food like some dirty common peasants. (laughs) Around 1.05 p.m., Detective Arndt begins to lead officers on a thorough search of the house from top to bottom. John grabs Fleet, heads to the basement again, and that's when John finds John Bonet's body. According to forensics expert Ron Walker, who worked for the Boulder PD at the time, whenever a murder is staged... The perpetrator will deliberately take a family friend or neighbor to the body so that the other person can witness their shock and distress, their surprise. Upon the side of his daughter, John smothers her, cries out and covers her blanket, takes John Bonet's body upstairs, effectively, completely destroying the crime scene. Now I do realize that might've been a natural reaction. Someone might've, you know, might react that way. I might react that way. I might not care at all about protocol if my kid had been killed. What I find very strange about all of this is that it took the Ramseys over seven fucking hours to find her body when it was in the house the whole time. Think about that, over seven hours. If one of my kids was missing, ransom note or not, I would think I would tear the house apart looking for them. And she wasn't hidden. She was laying on the floor in a basement room. All the, all the you know, fleet would have just turned on that light earlier, if that officer would have just opened the door, right there. She wasn't hidden under anything. The family was now looking in the world, you know, for her. In fact, they believed, you know, if they believed, the ransom note's author, they're supposed to be waiting at home. So if you're supposed to be at home anyway, and you think, you know, you're supposed to be waiting by the phone or at least, you know, be, be able to grab the phone quickly when they call. Why would you at the very least not look everywhere in your home? The 911, you know, or 911 call was placed at 5.52 a.m. They can't, over seven hours and they don't look in every room of the house. What the fuck? That really makes no sense to me at all. Five minutes later at 1.10 p.m., Detective Arndt moves the body a second time into a different room, further muddies the evidence. People could critique this about her for a long time as well. Okay, now, now let's push pause in the timeline and let's look at the crime scene a little bit. Poor little Jean Bonet's mouth was covered in duct tape. Nylon cord connected to a crude garrote was found around her wrists and neck, and her torso was covered by a white blanket. So sad. I mean, she had just celebrated a dream Christmas in a mansion. Now she's dead. Just gotten her first bike. Now this. Very strangely, she wasn't wearing the clothes her parents said she had on when she went to bed the night before. So apparently she had been redressed after her murder. John and Patsy told investigators that she was wearing a red turtleneck pajama top when they put her to bed. She was found in a white one. Her red turtleneck was in the bathroom sink, found, according to John, fully clothed, covered by one of her blankets. Very unusual, especially considering that her autopsy would later conclude that she may have been sexually assaulted before her death. Say mates, uh, this, you'll see, this thing gets so muddy here real quick. Uh, you know, that detail would seem to make the whole thing stranger. Like, like what, what kind of intruder sexually assaults, kills a child, then carefully puts clothes back on them, fresh clothes, then t- takes them out of the basement, carefully lays their body in the ground, then sits down. Writes out a long, rambling ransom note, then leaves, then doesn't ever call about the ransom money. It's all very odd. Making it all weirder, the ligatures around her neck and right wrist were, investigators say, very loose, consistent with staging a crime. The knots used on the crude garrote made from Patsy's own paintbrush to choke the child to death with were quite intricate, also unusual. Dirt bags, you know, looking to sexually assault a child, strangle the child, don't usually take the time to make a nice, fancy knot. Usually they don't know how. I'm going to be real honest. Uh, Moreover, there were no signs of forceful entry and more importantly, uh, no footprints in the melting snow around the house. This makes an intruder breaking in that much more unlikely. Greg McCrary, former FBI agent and adjunct forensic psychology professor at Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale, contributing author to the 1992 crime classification manual, dude who knows some shit about crime, adds that pedophiles and ransom kidnappers never overlap. He says... Pedophiles grab the child, molest them, and discard them. Ransom kidnappers are in it strictly for the money. What the fuck is going on with this crime? Although the coroner did not specify the exact time of death, there was a neighbor who told police that she had been awakened shortly after midnight. Remember that loud piercing scream? Uh, The Ramseys tell police they heard nothing or they heard nothing. Then the Boulder PD makes a huge mistake. They would later admit it. Uh, They didn't separate the witnesses, the Ramseys, and didn't get their statements. Had they done that, they might've solved this case. You know? Uh, instead they potentially gave the murderer or murderers months and months to come up with a pl- plausible denial, a good plan, hire the, the right lawyers in, in the basement where John Bonet was found again, a window was broken. There was a suitcase underneath it. Like we said, forensics on the scene thought that if a perpetrator entered the house, you know, maybe he would, uh, going to use this, uh, suitcase to get out the window, especially because the suitcase had an unidentified footprint on it. But John Ramsey again, later told investigators he had broken the window to get into the house when he had locked himself out a few months before and that the suitcase was his. Ah, uh, weird that he didn't have someone fix the window, right? They were loaded; it was busted months ago. Why didn't Why didn't you have someone come and fix it? You know, seems like a be someone on the priority to not let people sneak in your basement. There was a sizable cobweb. Also, this is a big thing about the intruder, intruder theory: sizable cobweb on the window, still there when police initially investigated it. If a perpetrator had slipped through the window, they would have had to have uh, not disturb this giant cobweb, which would have been virtually impossible. Also, the complexity and size of the web uh, was such that it couldn't have been new. It looked like it had, you know, uh, had, had to have been there for quite some time. Between 1.20 and 1.30 p.m., still on December 26th, Boulder policeman Ron Walker, uh, police officers, Ron Walker and Larry Mason, arrive and search the basement and wine cellar for further clues. They finally secure the home, preventing further arrivals and contamination, but the damage had already been done. 1.40 p.m., John Ramsey calls his pilot, allegedly is hurt, asking him to prepare a plane to Atlanta. Then law enforcement instructs the family not to leave town. Five minutes later, heeding the officer's warning, the Ramseys leave their house with plans to stay the night at Fernie's home. At 2 30 p.m. that day, police conduct an interview with John Bonet's brother, Burke, which reveals the nine year old had allegedly slept through the events of the previous night. But what about that enhanced audio from the 911 call? Now, at some point after this, his father is advised to procure an attorney. He does, hires a friend named Mike Bynum. The following day, an autopsy of John Bonet's body is conducted on December 27th. By the Boulder County Coroner's Office, let's examine what they found out. The cause of John Bonet's death was ruled asphyxia by strangulation associated with craniocerebral trauma. The autopsy report supports the conclusion that she was alive before she was asphyxiated by strangulation and that she fought her attacker in some manner. Evidence gathered during the autopsy was consistent with the inference that she struggled to remove a garotte from her neck. The autopsy report reveals injury to John Bonet's genitalia consistent with a sexual assault shortly before her death, although no head, inf- we'll see, that's going to be challenged here in a bit, although no head injury was visible when she was first discovered, the autopsy also revealed she re- received she had received a severe blow to her head shortly before or around the time of her murder. Forensic pathologists believe she was alive when she was struck on the head and alive when the grout was applied. The scalp hemorrhage ran from the right eyebrow to the back of the head. The corresponding skull fracture was eight and a half inches long with a small displaced fragment of bone. She had a subdural hemorrhage beneath the skull. Although the head wound was a fatal type injury, uh petechial hemorrhaging of the eyes indicated that JonBenet was alive at the time of her strangulation, possibly brain dead or about to die, but technically still alive at that time. The bleeding in JonBenet's genitalia area also indicated she was alive when she was assaulted if she was assaulted, her hymen was torn and material consistent with wooden shards from the paintbrush used to make the garrot found in her vagina. Ugh. I mean, that adds such a strange wrinkle to all this, you know, uh, no evidence suggests that she was the victim of chronic sexual abuse, which I would think would be the case if one of her parents had assaulted her. However, you know, if she was sexually assaulted by a family member. I mean, I, I, you know, it could have been the first time. There's always to, has to be a first time, not impossible. Uh, Did John or Patsy or maybe even Burke begin to assault her? Kids are curious. Sometimes they do act out sexually on other kids. That doesn't not happen. Did that begin to happen? Then she tried to get them to stop. Then things escalated from there. Maybe. Again, it's such a confusing crime. And check this out. Mark Beckner, the man who was the Boulder police chief during John Bonet's murder investigation, did a Reddit Ask Me Anything in 2015. This is what he said. We know from the evidence she was hit in the head very hard with an unknown object, possibly a flashlight or similar type item. The blow knocked her deep un- uh, into the blow knocked her into deep unconsciousness, which could have led someone to believe she was dead. The strangulation came 45 minutes to two hours after the head strike based on the swelling on the brain. While the head wound would have, have eventually killed her, the strangulation actually did kill her. The rest of the scene we believe was staged. This is the important part. The rest of the scene we believe was staged, including the vaginal trauma, to make it look like a kidnapping assault gone bad. Right, and again, that was a, uh, a Reddit AMA response from Mark Beckner, the guy who was the Boulder Police Chief during John murder investigation. A guy who didn't understand what an AMA was and didn't realize uh, that everyone would be able to find out what he said, uh, and felt bad about disclosing all of that later. I mean, I mean, you know, the, the PD they they thought this was all staged. Vaginal trauma may have been staged. How fucked up is that? I mean, think about what that means. You know, that means that, you know, let's say Burke smashed her in the head on accident. John and Patsy either think she's already dead or is going to be dead. Uh, one of them strangles her, puts a paintbrush in her vagina and their daughter's vagina to make it look like she'd been sexually assaulted. How incredibly dark is that possibility? I mean, I don't know what else you're supposed to infer from from this as, as uh, when, the, when they say that, it, you know, must've been staged. How could you put a paintbrush in your dead daughter's vagina to cover up your son accidentally killing her? Yeah. The coroner took nail clippings from John Bonet. Male DNA was found under John Bonet's right hand fingernail that does not match any of the Ramseys. In addition, male DNA was found in John Bonet's underwear that did not match any of the Ramseys. Man, DNA analysis will further muddy this shit up over the years, as you will soon see. Finally, the coroner's report notes injuries on the right side of John Bonet's face and left lower back. While defendants assert that these injuries are consistent with the use of a stun gun, plaintiff notes from the uh, investigation know that the coroner's report does not expressly state the injuries were the result of such an instrument. However, Dr. Michael Doberson, a forensic pathologist retained by the Ramseys who examined the Boulder Coroner's autopsy report and autopsy photos, concludes that the injuries to the right side of of the face, as well as the lower left back, are patterned injuries most consistent with the application of a stun gun. In the sun, this is part of the intruder hypothesis. Some, some creep came in there and, and stunned her with a stun gun, then did what he, he did. There was also a flashlight photograph sitting on the Ramsey's kitchen table that fit John Bonet's rectangular head wound fracture exactly. Some will later point to this as the head trauma weapon. Now here's something else to think about. Why would a kidnapper strangle to death a child who has already, uh, already suffered deadly head trauma? You know, if a family member had hit her in the head, why would they also strangle her? Or make it look like she was strangled. If it really was an accident, why couldn't they just be honest? Burke was nine. If he accidentally killed his sister, would he really get in that much trouble? I doubt it. Not with attorneys, you know, the ones the family could afford. I mean, I told you, man, the more you look into this, the more confused this shit gets. Damn it, Lucifina, clear my head and show me the truth. Now let's make it even more confusing. The autopsy also revealed a vegetable or fruit material, which may represent pineapple, which Jean Benet had eaten a few hours before her death. Photographs of the home taken on the day when Jean Bonnet's body were found do show a bowl of pineapple pieces in milk on the kitchen table with a spoon in it. However, both John and Patsy said they did not remember putting the bowl on the table or ever feeding the pineapple to Jean Bonnet. What the flip's going on with this fruit? I mean, did someone she knew sneak in, wake her up, take her to the kitchen for a midnight snack? Would, would someone ever do that, knowing at any time one of her parents could come downstairs and catch him? Police reported that they found Jean Bonnet's nine year old brother, Burke's fingerprints on the bowl. Did Burke, you know, help her get a little snack and then something happened after that? The Ramseys have always maintained that Burke slept through the entire episode until he was awake in several hours after the police had arrived. Like the phone call, that, you know, makes it seem like this, this is not true. Why are they lying about Burke? Why there, there seems to be a lot of lies around Burke. You know, and again, if Burke killed her, would a nine-year-old follow up with a head wound with strangulation? I, I don't think he would have done that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, On December 30th, police take blood and hair samples from John Ramsey, other members of the family. Jean-Andrew Ramsey and Melinda Ramsey, John Bonet's adult half-siblings, were in Georgia on the day of the murder or immediately eliminated as suspects. December 31st, six-year-old John Bonet is buried at St. James Episcopal Cemetery in Marietta, Georgia. The family, including John and Patsy, allowed to travel to Atlanta for the funeral. How tragic. Less than a week after they were all celebrating Christmas. The following day, New Year's Day, January 1st, 1997, John and Patsy Ramsey grant an extensive interview to CNN in which Patsy Ramsey proclaims, there is a killer on the loose. John Ramsey calls the idea that he or other members of his family could have committed the crime nauseating beyond belief. This interview was done before the Boulder police could officially interview the two alone, and the Boulder police are beginning to further suspect the Ramseys had something to do with this murder. Five detectives fly from Boulder to Atlanta to interview them. Now, let's look at the CNN interview a bit more. It, it didn't, did not do them any favors with the court of public opinion. In one part of this national interview, Patsy Ramsey says, we have to find out who did this. John Ramsey adds, not because we're angry, but we have to go on. Not angry? But what? Your daughter was sexually assaulted and murdered in your home a fucking week ago? And you're not angry? Are you a robot? Are you a sociopath incapable of emotion? Like, you know, more CEOs are sociopaths than the average person. We learned that a long time ago and sucked number four. I mean, it's just very weird. It does not, it's not a good look. The Ramseys are asked, are you fully convinced that your daughter was kidnapped? Patsy starts to shake her head no. And then John starts to shake his head yes. She starts nodding yes as well then. And then she says, it's just so hard to know, but we are, our, our family is a loving family. It's a gentle family. Why would John, you know, give kind of a, a yes answer? Dude, you, you you know she wasn't kidnapped. You found her body in the home. The cops were there by 6 a.m. No kidnapper snuck her body and his law enforcement continued to arrive. And what, what? what Some kidnapper snuck her in, you know, sometime after, or snuck in sometime after 10 p.m., got her out, then brought her back. You know, follow, what? It makes zero sense. She wasn't kidnapped. On January 3rd, John and Patsy returned to Colorado right after John Bonet's funeral. February 13th, 97, Boulder Police Chief Tom Kobe, Boulder, uh, Boulder County District Attorney Alex Hunter hold a news conference where they vowed that the killer will be brought to justice. D.A. Hunter then announces the formation. Uh, and as that, the different police chief that I mentioned earlier. It was, you know, there was, it's a long investigation. There ended up being several police chiefs that would be part of it. D.A. Hunter then announces the formation of an expert prosecution task force, including forensic expert Henry Lee, DNA expert Barry Sheck. Both Lee and Sheck were part of the O.J. Simpson defense team, and the media eats this shit up. This case is a subject of immense media coverage. And the general consensus seems to be a belief that the Ramseys did it. Bonnet's pageant experience seems to have been a major factor in coming to that belief. Media pundits and the general public alike find the pageant lifestyle odd. Obviously, I can't blame them. Uh, I mean, let's say the Ramsey's had nothing to do with her the daughter's death, and, and, and she was killed by some random pedophile. Ton of, a ton of articles about the case that I've read indicate that a lot of people thought that at the very least, dressing her up like they did turned her into a magnet for pedophiles, turned her into like a, like a pedo bait. And I don't t- totally disagree. I mean, you sexualize your kid. I mean, you are, you know, making them more noticeable to fucking people who are sexually attracted to kids. I mean, did someone who knew her from the pageant world kill her? That's, you know, another possibility uh, that goes with the intruder theories. March 13th, 97, veteran homicide detective Lou Smith joins the Ramsey murder investigation. Smith was a retired investigator from El Paso County, best known for cracking the murder case of Heather Don Church in Colorado Springs. Heather Don was not, in fact, a church. She was a 13-year-old girl killed by a dirtbag named Robert Charles Brown, a guy who, like Otis Toole and Henry Lucas, uh, ended up confessing to a whole bunch of other murders he may or may not have committed after getting arrested. April 3rd, 1997, DNA testing begins at Cellmark Diagnostics Labs in Maryland. This was the second round of DNA testing in the JonBenet case. The initial round was conducted at the Colorado Bureau of Investigation Labs. Just two weeks later, DA Alex Hunter, for the first time, publicly identified John and Patsy Ramsey as the primary focus of their investigation. Gosh dang G Wilkers. This does not look flipping good. On April twenty seventh, ninety six, the Ramsey's a newspaper ad offering a hundred thousand dollar reward for info about Jean Bonnet's killer. Three days later, April thirtieth, the police conduct their long awaited formal interviews with John and Patsy Ramsey, more than four months after Jean Bonnet was found murdered. Not good. Patsy is interrogated for six and a half hours. John is questioned for just two hours. At the end, the police released no statement regarding the contents of those interviews. May 1st, 97, John and Patsy Ramsey, in a rare interview with reporters, declare their innocence. I did not kill my daughter, John Ramsey states. Patsy says, let me assure you that I did not kill Jean Benet. On May 13th, 97, the first detective to arrive at the murder scene, Linda Arndt, Arndt is dropped from the case. Why? She'll later claim she was fired for criticizing her superiors uh, for their handling of this case. Her superiors will say, will say she was removed because she bungled the case. On August 14th, 97, Bonet's grisly autopsy details are released to the public. On January 15th, 1998, John and Patsy Ramsey refuse to submit to another round of interviews unless they can review the evidence. First, uh, a condition unacceptable to police to refuse. Uh, it does seem weird. The whole refusing to come in and do the interviews does seem weird to me. It's never properly explained. Some sources say the Boulder PD just botched the interviews, not demanding them immediately because John was a rich, big-wig local businessman with military contractor ties. Some sources seem to think that this is just what happens when you have lots of money can hire good lawyers to do everything and their legal power to make it hard for police to investigate you. I do think if they were for sure innocent, why not cooperate more with police? But again, you know, if you have a lawyer reminding you that innocent people can and do go to jail for horrible crimes all the time, even murder, I can also see why an innocent person would not cooperate. January 16th, Governor Roy Romer. Romer. Roy Romer rejects the request by two friends of the Ramsey family to appoint a special prosecutor in the murder case. A little bit of conflict of interest there. Your friend is suspected of murder, and now you're going to try and get a prosecutor you like attached to the case. January 29th, 98, more than a year after their daughter was murdered, the Ramseys turn over to police the clothing they were wearing the night John Bonet was found dead. That, that is so ridiculous to me. Wish I understood the legal protocol more here. W- why didn't they get the clothes week one? What is the point of getting them over a year later? I mean, so you can see what kind of detergent they've been using. Also, wouldn't it be very easy just to buy new versions of the clothing you were wearing and then give that to the police? I mean, how the fuck would they know the difference? On March 12, 98, after looking for the killer for, of John Bonet for 15 months, police say the best bet for solving that murder is a grand jury investigation and formally called for such a probe after conferring with district attorney Alex Hunter. So, what is a grand jury investigation? I've always been a little confused by that. I know we mentioned grand jury investigations in the Black Dahlia. Suck. They were used to investigate LAPD corruption and also to try and bring a Dahlia suspect to trial. But I never explained what a grand jury investigation is. It's pretty unique, according to Wikipedia, which provides uh, you know provided the best, most understandable layman speak type definition I could find, uh, better than the legal sites I found. A grand jury is well, a jury, a group of citizens empowered by local by law to conduct legal proceedings and investigate potential criminal conduct and determine whether criminal charges should be brought. A grand jury may subpoena physical evidence of a, or a person to testify. A grand jury is separate from the courts, which do not preside over its functioning. Uh, Liberia and the United States are the only two countries in the world that use grand juries like this. Uh, it's a type of trial, basically, that determines if you're going to have a criminal trial. Unlike a regular trial, there's no defense with a grand jury investigation. Only the prosecution trying to convince a jury that someone should be prosecuted at a criminal trial. And when and why are these grand juries used? Without, you know, hijacking this timeline further into an explanation of our entire criminal court system, the simplest answer I've found is grand juries are used when the prosecution does not have enough evidence to convince a judge that a subject should be held to answer for a crime. So, in the John Bonet case, what happened was the Boulder Police Department was having a hard time figuring out how to charge... You know, uh, John Bonnet's parents, with her murder, a lot of members of the BPD. They think that Jean and Patsy, maybe Burke, either did it, had something to do with it, but they just don't have enough evidence to get a judge to sign off on an indictment. So they decide to try for a grand jury, hope that they can convince them that there's enough evidence or enough circumstantial evidence to bring them to trial. I think that's about as good as I can explain it. Uh, hopefully, I got that right. Making things more complicated, while most of the Boulder PD. Uh, convinced of Ramsey's guilt, they want to, you know, call for a grand jury investigation. The DA's office does not think the Ramsey's are involved. This was a big, uh, complicated part of this case. The Boulder Police Department seemed to consistently believe it was the Ramsey's. The district uh, attorney's office seemed to consistently believe in the intruder theory. In May 1998, Lou Smith, the detective hired by the DA's office, presents his findings to the uh, BPD with other staff members of the DA's office, concluding that the evidence pointed away from the Ramsey's. However, Smith and his team were unable to successfully challenge enough members of the BPD who did believe the Ramseys were guilty. The DA's office sought to take control of the investigation. Due to animosity between the police and the DA's office and the pressure to obtain a conviction, Colorado Governor Roy Romer steps in, names Michael Kane as special prosecutor to initiate a grand jury. Two of the lead investigators in the case who had opposing views, Smith and Steve Thomas, resign. Smith, because he believes that the investigation had incompetently overlooked the intruder hypothesis. Thomas, because the DA's office had interfered with and failed to support the police investigation of the case, which pointed at the Ramseys. Steve Thomas resigned with the well-publicized letter, which said, Attempts to gather evidence were met with refusals, and instead it was suggested that we ask permission from the Ramses before proceeding. He thought the Ramseys had intimidated the DA's office. Office. As the feud with the DA's office escalated, the Boulder police accepted the aid of a dream team of three attorneys who offered to provide pro bono counsel in the case. Curiously, one of the attorneys had served as outside counsel counsel excuse me to Lockheed Martin in several cases. The second belonged to a firm that had also represented that company. The third had been co-counsel with Hal Haddon, John Ramsey's criminal attorney in another matter. Right? This is a little fishy. Who would want the case delayed? Various entities connected to the case had strong reasons for delaying a grand jury investigation. District Attorney Hunter, whose office rarely went to trial in homicide cases, was just one. This was not his comfort zone. This guy was not well-liked at all by Boulder PD. They seemed to think he was pretty weak-willed, weak-minded. Lockheed Martin, one of the state's largest employers, would want the trial delayed as well. right? This company has been trying to sell access graphics uh, for a while now to General Electric you know, any risk that the company's top top executive would be facing possible indictment would not have helped the the divestment plans. Do you see how messy this all is? Now you have lawyers representing John Ramsey, whose employers could lose a lot of money if he's found guilty of killing his own daughter. The trial is delayed. The delay was, you know, damaging to the investigation further on several fronts. Leaks proliferated. Witnesses altered their stories or sold them to tabloids. It just keeps getting messier. On June 24th, 1998, John and Patsy Ramsey returned to Colorado for interrogation by district attorney's investigators are reportedly questioned together and separately. For the first time, the prosecution conducts an extensive interview now with their son, Burke, who's 11, over a year and a half after John Bonet died. August 6, 1998, in a stinging eight-page resignation letter, an angry detective, Steve Thomas, one of the lead investigators, says District Attorney Hunter's office is thoroughly compromised and that they've crippled the case. Thomas charged that critical evidence had not been collected and maintained that other evidence wasn't even tested. Colorado Governor Ray Romer then asked four Boulder area DAs whether or not he should intervene further in the case. It's a huge mess. August 12th, Governor Romer says he wants to help the DA further, not remove him from the case. He invokes a state statute that allows for special deputies to assist the DA. You know, the case is headed for grand jury. On August 20th, sources tell the Denver Post that an enhanced version of the 911 call Patsy Ramsey made the morning she found the Ramsey note includes Burke's voice. We talked about that. A grand jury convenes beginning September 15th, 1998 to consider indicting the Ramseys for charges relating to the case. Five months after they were chosen on uh, uh, Boulder County, grand jurors began their investigation. Uh, then uh, investigator Lou Smith then resigns saying authorities are focusing too heavily on Bonet's parents In his res- resignation letter. Lou says the Ramseys did not kill their daughter and a very, very dangerous killer is still out there. October 13th, 1998, the grand jury begins uh, hearing forensic evidence including analysis of handwriting, DNA, and hair and fibers found at the scene. Seven days later, on October 20th, John Ramsey returns to Colorado for a deposition in a civil case filed against him in the National Enquirer by photographer Stephen Miles, who is a neighbor of the Ramseys. In one National Enquirer article, a statement attributed to John Ramsey speculates that the real murder was an intruder, most likely a pedophile. We plan to suggest it was a neighbor, Stephen Miles. John's attorney will argue that John said no such thing. 99. The grand jury returns a true bill to charge the Ramses with placing the child at risk in a way that led to her death and with obstructing an investigation of murder. This is an easier indictment than outright murder. It requires a lower burden of proof. But Boulder County District Attorney Alex Hunter does not prosecute. He believes that he still doesn't have enough evidence to prove them guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in court. Some think the Ramses have literally paid D.A. Hunter off. The sniping and finger-pointing between Boulder PD and the district attorney's office intensifies. Some prosecutors believe the detectives are too fixated on the parents of suspects, failed to adequately explore other leads. Cops accuse the DA of being too chummy or intimidated by the Ramsey legal team. After more than a year of hearings, the proceedings have accomplished absolutely fucking nothing. They look to be over. On February 18, 1999, Lawrence Schiller's book, Perfect Murder, Perfect Town, offers new insight and details into the investigation. This book describes the feud between police and prosecutors. On April 8th, 1999, a six month extension of the grand jury's investigation is granted, proceedings not over. They've decided to keep trying. On May 19, 1999, Burke, now 12, is secretly questioned by the grand jury. The next day, Boulder authorities publicly confirm he's not a suspect but is a witness. Fuck, what? A witness? What did he see? Then on September 13th, 1999, former detective Linda Arndt, one of the first detectives on the crime scene the day John Bonnet's body was found, who by this time has resigned from the BPD, appears on Good Morning America claiming she knows what happened the night Jean Bonnet was killed in a five-part interview she uh, says she knows who killed the girl but will not reveal the name but she kind of does she makes it, i watched it she makes it very clear without saying his name that she thinks that John Ramsey the father for sure did it September 23rd 1999 after uh, uh, almost 4 months off the grand jury returns to work October 13th 99 DA Alex Hunter announces after the grand jury has completed his work that his team still does not think they have sufficient evidence to warrant filing of charges. Over three years later, Mary Lacey, the next Boulder County District Attorney, takes over the investigation from the police on the six year anniversary of Jean Bonnet's death, December 26, 2002. In April 2003, Lacey states that Jean Bonnet's killing is more consistent with the theory that an intruder murdered Jean Bonnet than it was with the theory that Mrs. Ramsey did. Back and forth it goes. December 2003, DNA results muddy everything further. Forensic investigators extract enough material from a mixed blood sample found on Jean Bonnet's underwear underwear, to establish a DNA profile. That DNA belongs to an unknown male person. Investigators obviously hope that this is a big break in solving the case. The DNA was submitted to the FBI's combined DNA index system, a database containing more than 1.6 million DNA profiles. Doesn't yield a match. Fast forward a couple of years later, June 24, 2006, Patsy Ramsey dies after battling ovarian cancer off and on for more than a decade. August 15, 2006, John Mark, uh, John Mark Carr, a 41 year old elementary school teacher, confesses that he accidentally killed Jean Bonnet while attempting to sexually assault her. He's arrested in Thailand. For a brief moment, it looks like Jean Bonnet's killer has been found. Nope. The case against Carr collapses later that August. DNA test results eliminate him as a suspect. Also, he wasn't in Boulder at the time of the murder. More on this fucking nut job a little bit later. July 9, 2008, armed with new DNA evidence that points to an unknown male as Janbane's killer, Boulder County District Attorney Mary Lacey publi- publicly exonerates the child's parents and immediate family. In a letter hand-delivered to John Ramsey, Lacey says she is confident that a touch DNA analysis done by a private lab has determined the genetic material left on the waistband of long johns Bonet was wearing when her body was found matches the DNA left in her underwear and that that DNA belongs to an unknown suspect. With no strong suspects remaining, the case goes cold. In October 2010, the case is reopened. New interviews are conducted following a fresh inquiry by a committee that included state and federal investigators. Police are expected to use more, uh, you know, to, to use newer DNA technology in this investigation. There was no new information gleaned from those interviews, according to ABC News. It was reported in September 2016 that the investigation into Bonnet's death continued to be an active homicide case, per Boulder Police Chief Greg Testa. In September of 2016, TV programs from A&E, Dr. Phil, Dayline, NBC, CBS News, air Bonnet specials in advance of the 20th anniversary of her murder. Boulder Police Chief Greg Testa says in a September 1st videotaped statement that he won't do interviews about the case to maintain the investigation's integrity. He points out that the department has processed 1,500 pieces of evidence, has taken 200 DNA samples, interviewed more than 1,000 people in eight states, investigated more than 20,000 tips. Uh, Not going to do any more interviews. In October of 2016, forensic expert to examine the results of the DNA test obtained exclusively by the Daily Camera and Nine News dispute former DA Mary Lacey's conclusion that a DNA profile found in one place on John Bonet's underpants and two locations under Long John's was the killer's. This is where that fucking DNA thing is so crazy. The experts say the evidence showed that the DNA samples came from at least two people in addition to John Bonet. Something Lacey's office was told, but that she didn't mention when she cleared the Ramseys. And the experts also said that these DNA samples were of the kind that likely could have come from a Long John factory factory worker. They could have just sneezed on him. Damn it. Right? Many now feel that the Ramsey should have never been exonerated based on DNA testing right? The results were misinterpreted. looks like the DNA test had nothing to do with the murder. December 13th, 2016, Boulder police and prosecutors plan a new round of DNA tests that yield jack shit. To this date, there are no new leads. The case remains unsolved. Various legal analysts seem to all agree that the case will, in all likelihood, forever remain unsolved, but we're still going to look at some suspects. Let's bounce out of this timeline to do exactly that. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. When it comes to suspects, there is, as you know, two main groups, family and intruders. We're going to look at both after a word from a final sponsor. Time Suck is brought to you today by BPI, Boulder Private Investigators. Staffed only by former investigators who worked on the John Bonet Ramsey case, BPI specializes in taking your hard-to-solve case and continuing to never fucking solve it ever. Plenty of PI firms can get you answers. That's easy. BPI gets you so many questions. Always more questions than answers or your money back. Do you want constant disagreement between investigators and forensic experts in the DA's office? Do you want to drag a case out indefinitely, continue to add theories until no one even cares who did it anymore and everyone wants to put the whole thing behind them? Do you want to really start to nail down a suspect and then go full, JK, never mind, and start over from scratch? Do you want to pay a lot of people a lot of money to look really busy, but actually accomplish exactly nothing? Call BPI. They're the best in the game at taking your case seriously and seriously, never, ever fucking solving it. And of course, that sponsor is not real. TimeSug is brought to you today by Movement. Whether you're at the office scrolling through your phone or unwinding from a long day, Movement's Everscroll blue light filtering glasses have you covered. I'm wearing them right now. Want a pair right now for your YouTube watchers. They're built to protect your eyes from blue light that's known to cause eye strain, discomfort, excuse me, poor sleeping patterns. And Everscroll blue light filtering glasses started just 65 bucks. I got a mild prescription for glasses over a year ago because eye strain was killing me. And then I got these movement blue light blockers, no prescription, and I wear them more than prescription glasses now. They do more to reduce eye strain for me than slight magnification. Any future prescription lenses I get are for sure going to have this uh, you know, blue light filter. And I think they look cool. I think they make me look a little smarter, maybe a little young, younger wearing them. They don't look like uh, other computer glasses you see out there, right? These aren't just, you know, you know, regular glasses. No yellow tint lenses like you find other blue light blockers, right? None of, the, none of those dork glasses. Pick from round frames, clear frames, colored frames, etc. Movement selection is always expanding with new traditional and fashion forward styles to choose from. Get 15% off today with free shipping, free returns by going to movement.com slash timesuck that's mvmt.com slash suck shop movement ever scroll blue light filtering glasses protect your eyes look great doing it movement.com slash time suck join the movement link in the episode description. Now let's look at some uh, theories. let's start with the intruder theory right let's let's go over this in general before we look at individual intruder possibilities. The intruder theory goes something like this somebody was able to survey the family find a time when they weren't in the house, get into the house when everyone we went to sleep they wrote a ransom letter, took John Bonet possibly using a stun gun to subdue her then took her down to the basement, tied her up, killed her, still left the ransom note saying she was safe. Then they left through the window without disturbing a huge cobweb, then never contacted anyone about the ransom. So, you know, makes a lot of sense. Uh, this is the theory that Lou Smith buys. One of the homicide detectives hired by district attorney, Alex Hunter, early in the investigation. He believes this mostly because John Bonet might've been sexually assaulted. And to Smith, this uh, irrevocably, gosh, points to someone outside the house. But she might not have been sexually assaulted. There was no evidence of conventional rape. Although sexual assault could not be ruled out. Although no semen was found, there was evidence that there had been a vaginal injury. And At the time of the autopsy, it appeared the vaginal area had been wiped with a cloth. However, fuck, this is so confusing, this case. Oh, my heck, mother! Dr. Richard Krugman, a specialist in child abuse, brought in as a consultant by Hunter's office, says that there was a vaginal abrasion which is, quote, a sign of trauma, not a sign of sexual abuse necessarily, meaning she could have fallen down, could have ran into something. You know, her hothead brother could have kicked her in the in the junk. You know, she might not have been sexually assaulted, or maybe she was. Dr. Cyril Wecht, Wecht a well-known forensic pathologist, has no doubt that the 45-pound child had been molested, saying if she had been taken to a hospital emergency room and doctors had seen the general evidence, her father would have been arrested. All right, fine. No one can agree on fucking anything. Call BPI. Uh, the vaginal opening, according to Dr. Robert Kirschner of the University of Chicago's pathology department, was twice the normal size for six-year-olds. The genital injuries indicate penetration, he says, but probably not by a penis, and are evidence of molestation that night as well as previous molestation. Ha, huh. yeah, I'm not a doctor, but it seems like Dr. Kirshner is reading a lot into this vaginal opening, especially since other doctors are divided on what happened. There was also blood and urine stains on her underpants. A considerable obstacle to the investigators, according to one well-placed source in the DA's office, was the fact that the crime scene in the body had been cleaned up. Maybe that's what uh, John Ramsey was doing when he was missing for an hour. Another piece of evidence pointing to an intruder is that there had been more than 100 burglaries in the Ramsey's neighborhood in the months before John Buddy's murder. Also, there were 38 registered sex offenders living within a two-mile radius of the Ramsey home. Creeps! They don't just live in neighborhoods like missing fingernails. They also live in, uh, or li- live, you know, near neighborhoods like Chattaqua. Now let's look at one of these sex offenders and a few other suspects relating to the intruder theory. One of the individuals that veteran homicide detective Lou Smith, uh, identified as a suspect under his intruder theory was Gary Howard Oliva or Oliva, uh, who was arrested for two counts of attempted sexual exploitation of a child and one count of sexual exploitation of exploitation of a child on uh, June, 2016. Um, Sounds like the same charge there, but whatever. That's how it's written. This con- uh, convicted pedophile had been living in the area on and off when police allegedly found a magazine cutout of John Bonnet Ramsey in his backpack after he was apprehended on drug charges in 2000. Creepy. He was soon released, but suspicion remained. DNA, DNA testing for the John Bonet murder cleared him, but we know all the fucking problems with the DNA testing. Uh, he was charged with two counts of sexual exploitation of a child for possessing child pornography. Um, and check this out just this summer, this motherfucker currently in prison, but due for parole next year, allegedly confessed to accidentally killing the six-year-old in a series of letters sent to a former high school classmate. I never loved anyone like I did John Bonet, And yet I let her slip and her head bashed in half. And I watched her die. Oliva wrote in a letter to his former classmate, Michael Vail. It was an accident. Please believe me. She was not like the other kids. So creepy. Not like the other kids. You know, I Google image search this living turd in a human costume, and he looks exactly like the kind of guy who writes that letter. Why do so many pedophiles have long, wispy hair and fucking mustaches? He looks so creepy that if you were a parent and you willingly let this motherfucker watch your kids and that he then molested them, the police should arrest you and the pedophile, send you both to prison. What what you in for? Letting fucking Gary watch my eight-year-old? Nah, sounds fair. Another letter to Vale, Oliver wrote, or Gary wrote. I don't, isn't that last name's weird? Uh, Jean Bonnet completely changed me and removed all evil from me. Just one look at her beautiful face, her beautiful glowing skin and her divine God body. I realized I was wrong to kill other kids. Yet by accident, she died and it was my fault. Her divine God body? Jesus! That's why you don't put six-year-olds in sexed up costumes and have them fucking parade around a catwalk because of the Garys of the world. That's it. Monroe is only wearing garbage bags starting tomorrow. Better yet, she'll be in a garbage can like Oscar the Grouch. On Fridays, she can loosen it up. She can wear snowsuits. In the summer, she won't have to, you know, wear her snow boots. Uh, vale said he has suspected his old high school buddy uh, for the last 22 years of killing John Bonet. Ever since he received a disturbing call from Gary shortly after the murder and before the case made national headlines. Vale, who lives in Ventura, California, told the Daily Mail, my suspicions began when Gary called me late at night on December 26, 1996. He was sobbing and said, I heard a little girl. I tried to get more information out of him. The only other thing he told me was that he was in Boulder, Colorado. On December 27th, I read the front page of my local newspaper, Girl 6 Slain in Boulder, Colorado. I immediately called the Boulder PD, told him what I knew about Gary and what he had told me days earlier. They didn't get back to me. Three months later, I called the police again to find out what was going on in the investigation of Gary, but instead I was sent to a police answering machine, set up for tips on the John Bonnet case. I left a message on the recorded line, and again, I never heard back from investigators. Boulder police released a statement this year saying that, you know, Olivia, Oliva, it's O-L-I-V-A. I I have no fucking idea how to pronounce that. Oliva, 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 Uh, had previously confessed and investigators had looked into his claim. The Boulder police department is aware of Gary and has investigated his potential involvement in this case, including several previous confessions, said the statement. The department routinely receives information on this investigation. Information provided to the police department is reviewed along with the many tips and theories you receive. I looked into this Michael Vail guy as well, who said all this about Gary. He also looks like a total pedo. Why was he still friends with Gary over 20 years after Gary basically told him he killed Bonnet? Fuck you, Michael Vail, you piece of shit. You're either a liar interfering with the murder investigation to try and get your face in some magazines, or your longtime buddies with an admitted, you know, fucking child, child abuser, fucking pedophile. Another potential suspect, according to Ollie Gray, a private investigator hired by the Ramsey family who died in 2017, was an electrician named Michael Helgoth, who worked in a nearby auto salvage yard. Gray referred to Helgoth as a hellraiser, tied to an alleged property dispute involving the Ramseys. Could that have served as possible motivation to seek revenge on the family and kidnap Jean Benet? It's been speculated that once the 26-year-old Helgoth caught wind that he could be a suspect in the case. Officials found a boot print allegedly similar to his near the Ramsey home. He committed suicide before anyone could get to him. His death occurred two days after a 1997 press conference announcing that the Boulder DA was zeroing in on a new suspect. However, Helgoth remains cleared by, you know, both DNA, which again is questionable, and the fact that he's dead as fuck. And it seems a little extreme to get back at him for like a little, uh, you know, uh, money dispute, property dispute. Well, yeah, I guess that stuff can't happen. Authorities close to the investigation said in 2016 that Helgoth and uh, Gary Oliva had been carefully investigated for many years and, you know, had not been considered suspects. In 2006, as we mentioned, a former school teacher, John Mark Carr, confessed out of the blue to the strangulation of John Bonet in graphic detail. Uh, Carr was arrested in Thailand where he'd been living on the lam after facing child porn charges in the U.S. When he confessed, he was immediately flown to Boulder for questioning, ultimately cleared after his DNA failed to match the profile of an unknown male. Carr's demented confession involved a series of diary entries allegedly written from the scene of the crime. In one dramatic account, Carr recalls strangling Jean Benet in a love game gone wrong. Close your pretty eyes, sweetheart, reads the excerpt, in which Carr repeatedly refers to himself as Daxis. Daxus loves you so much. Oh my God, I love you, Jean Benet, and my lover's eyes are slowly closing. Are, and my lover's eyes are slowly closing. I know we shouldn't make it illegal to write creepy shit like that about wanting to have sex with dead kids. You know, that would be an assault on free speech. but. Can we make it legal for parents to get to hit these people as hard as they want in the face at least one time for doing that? Uh, Carr, uh, you know, his, his, he was dismissed as a suspect altogether, written off as a pedophile. You know, just wanted notoriety and fame. He, he wasn't even in the area when it happened. Just fuck another nut. Uh, Carr believed to have changed his name and his gender, uh, living somewhere as a free woman in the U.S. named Delia Alexis Reich. New genital, same old creep. Uh a suspect, I feel sorry for. Was the Ramsey neighborhood Santa Claus Bill McReynolds, who died in 2002 at the age of 72, friend of the Ramseys who dressed up as Santa Claus the week before John Bonet's murder to entertain the neighborhood children at one of Patsy's famous Christmas gatherings? The possibility that the now deceased McReynolds had anything to do with John Bonet's death extremely unlikely, but does get tossed around on the internet a lot, a lot as far as suspect lists. After the other dudes we've named, he, he's the most suspected, uh, you know, uh, suspect under the intruder theory. McReynolds was r- rumored to have paid a little too much attention to Jean-Benet, going as far as to arrange a secret visit from Santa Claus on Christmas. Supposedly, he had chosen Bonet to be his special friend, going as far as to bring a vial of glitter gifted to him by the six-year-old with him into heart surgery. Even stranger, he asked his wife to mix the gold glitter in with his ashes were he to die. I mean, that is a little bit odd. To want a neighbor girl's glitter mixed in with your ashes. Uh, that story generated buzz in the Denver Post, failed to amount to anything more than the uh, uh, sensationalized character assassination of a friendly old man. This poor bastard... He should have never said shit about the glitter. Bill does seem to be have been a good guy. Bill was born in South Texas, a few miles from the border, a uh, little town of Donna, uh, Texas. 1930 received a degree in journalism from the University of Texas. Served in the army. Returned to his alma mater. Taught for five years before moving to Minneapolis to attend the University of Minnesota, where he earned his doctorate in American Studies. Hired by Colorado University Journalism Department in 1968, and then he and his wife Janet spent the next 30 years in Boulder, raising three kids. After his retirement from Colorado University in 92, he volunteered a lot of his time to be a children's Santa Claus. He really took to the role uh, as a life goal, Janet said, after his death. He loved being Santa. He loved little children. And then the Ramsey case destroyed that career and just devastated him. He loved that little girl. It was a very sad thing in his life because he genuinely loved children. It was the happiest part of his life. After being named a suspect by the court of public opinion, after the social backlash that entailed, he and Janet moved. They left for Cape Cod, In 1998, McReynolds never volunteered to be Santa again. Instead, he, uh, this grandfather of six volunteered at a local senior center the last few few years of his life before dying of a heart attack. Man, poor bastard. Not all people who like to spend time with kids are pedophiles. Important to remember that. I have to remind myself that sometimes after reading about all these dirtbags. There are other even less credible suspects in the intruder theory. Too many to mention. Let's talk about one last creep. Randall DeWitt Simmons. Randall DeWitt Simmons is a piece of shit. He is also a pageant photographer who took pictures or was, who took pictures of Bonet six months before she died. And he was arrested early this year on kiddie porn charges. Of course he was. He liked to see little girls all sexed up. Like to look at hot kids. He's a dirty bird. 66 year old was arrested this past July 2nd in the tiny central Oregon town of Oak Ridge. Charged with 15 counts of encouraging uh, child sex abuse. Currently awaiting trial in Oregon. And in 1998, less than two years after John Bonet's murder, he was arrested for walking down the street naked. And one of the first things he said to officers when he was arrested was, I, I didn't kill John JonBenet. So that's, you know, that's fun. That's not suspicious at all. Despite all of this, Boulder PD never considered him to be a serious suspect. They seem to have put him uh, in the uh, nuttier than squirrel shit crackpot list, put him on that after he was given a psychic vow or a psycho following his 1998 arrest. So it's confession killers all over again, man. What is it with these nuts? confessing to horseshit, shit, heinous stuff they didn't do. It's like, you know, like some kids thrive on negative attention, I guess some grown-ups do too. Now let's look at the family one last time. First Patsy, Jean Bonnet's mother, Patsy Ramsey, took whatever secrets she was holding from that, uh, you know, that morning to the grave when she passed away after a 13-year battle with cancer. The main murder theory with Patsy is that while she was cleaning up yet another one of Jean Bonet's bedwetting accidents, you know, she flipped out, slammed her little girl's head against the side of a hard blunt surface like a bathtub. You know, and uh, and then panicked. This one seems like a stretch to me, a big stretch. But former detective Steve Thomas thinks that Mrs. Ramsey strangled her daughter in, in a panicked moment on Christmas night, 1996, after accidentally causing a serious wound to the little girl's head. He contends that the girl's father, John Ramsey, after realizing what had happened, chose to protect his wife rather than help authorities. Uh, Steve also thinks that Patsy wrote the note. And if Patsy did kill John Bonnet, it's unlikely that she covered it up on her own, right? Like he said, uh, kept everything from her husband. So uh, that brings us, of course, to Papa John. John was the one to find John Bonet's body, the one to ruin the crime scene. He also, if you'll recall, reportedly disappeared for over an hour during the search for John Bonet. Rumors of a history of sexual abuse began to circulate almost immediately after the murder became a sensational news story, though no evidence was ever found to prove those allegations. John addressed those rumors in a press statement saying, there is no history. A person doesn't go throughout their lives as a normal human being. One night, turn into a monster, slaughter their daughter, go to bed and get up and act normal from there on. That doesn't happen. And to his point, no allegations of any wrongdoing ever plagued this guy before or since. Three other daughters, none of them ever alleged anything. Seems unlikely he molested. And again, she may not have even been molested. Uh, Now let's look at Brother Burke. Werner Spitz is a 93 year old German American forensic pathologist who has worked on so many high profile cases, including investigations into the assassinations of JFK, Martin Luther King. He testified at the trials of Casey Anthony, O.J. Simpson, and he consulted on John Bonet's homicide investigation. And his review of John Bonet's autopsy included finding a perfectly rectangular defect that he suspected came from a blow to the little girl's head with a blunt, heavy flashlight seen in a photo on the kitchen counter in the crime scene photos. He claimed the flashlight fit the eight-and-a-half-inch gash in her skull to perfection. However, no trace evidence of, uh, uh, you know, uh, neither John Bonet or or Burke was found in the flashlight. The flashlight became more suspicious when tied to the pineapple scenario, that theory we talked about earlier, you know, where maybe Burke, you know, gave her some uh, little slice of pineapple. He was having a late-night snack. They got into an argument. You know, he struck her with the flashlight in a moment of anger. You know, kids do stupid shit. Uh, Why the strangulation afterwards, though? Uh, why the possible vaginal penetration? Again, they you know they think that you know John or, or Pats you're both may have simulated all of that to to point the crime in a different direction. Ah, many theories with Burke revolve around John Bonet irritating her brother. Burke hitting her out of rage and frustration. I mean, he did have that golf club incident years earlier. Could Burke have gotten angry enough to strike his sister with a flashlight? Then ran and got the parents, you know, uh, who who came and helped cover him up. Yes, I mean, it is possible. Uh, John Bonet seemed to have been alive when she was strangled though. So, I mean that, ah, God, man, you know what John kills his own daughter, strangles her to keep his nine-year-old son from getting caught. But I guess there also is the possibility that she didn't appear to be alive. Ah, so many things. And these aren't the only, uh, theories. There's also uh, a bunch of conspiracy theories. Let's, uh, let's, let's take a break from all this reality and check in and see what other lunatics think happened on today's idiots of the internet. The Internet. 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 We're going to bounce around for a second before looking at some comments under, under one video. Uh, some people actually believe that JonBenet never died. I mentioned this earlier. i sure the older PD love this theory. They think she went into hiding, then resurfaced as pop star Katy Perry. This is a real theory. What the flip? According to this theory, her, uh, Katy Perry's song, Wide Awake, is believed to be an undercover message revealing the truth about her past as Bonnet. One of the many holes with this theory is that Katy Perry is six years older than JonBenet. Ah, uh, the evidence for this one is kind of, but 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 not really a physical resemblance between Katy Perry and jean Bonet Ramsey, as well as the kind of but not really uh, existing resemblance of both their sets of parents. It's super dumb, but some people believe it because some people are idiots. Uh, one YouTuber theorist went to great lengths to prove the similarities of their eyebrows, which obviously means they're the same. They have the same eyebrows. Uh, a different YouTuber points out the lines in Katy Perry's autobiography she wrote in reference to writing songs at an early age. Not that I was one of those stage kids. There was no Jean Bonnet Ramsey inside of me waiting to burst out. They think that's haha, see, she's saying it. Guess they don't understand fucking metaphors or just, you know, uh, analogies. Uh God. Okay. So another conspiracy is that the little dyed blonde-haired girl was sacrificed in a satanic ritual. Of course. Of course that, that shows up. There's all kinds of articles saying that a brotherhood term for devil is John Bet. Excuse me. Which is quite similar to her already unique first name. But none of these articles seem to have sources. Who Who is this brotherhood? Probably just a term someone threw up on Reddit when they were drunk. Then someone else reposted it and, you know, here we are. Another satanic theory is that John Benet was killed in a satanic pedophile ring ritual. Nope, gonna move away from that one. Some people think aliens killed her. Really, really paranoid and crazy people who think that aliens would hit her with a blunt object, then choke her, then write a weird ransom note, then make, make it look like maybe she'd been molested, then move her body, then not call for ransom. And then fucking, you get how dumb this is. You know, they're aliens. Why would they have to make shit so complicated? No alien has ever been arrested that we know of, ever. You know, why are they worried about covering the tracks? There's also a conspiracy that links Bonet's death with 9-11. Yay! According to the conspiracy site, the unhived mind Bonet was murdered by a Royal Canadian Air Force colonel operating on behalf of major British and American corporations and the Illuminati because her father refused to assist America's enemies in planning 9-11. Yes, people believe, grown-ups believe this. People with more free time than me. Just like with the aliens. Why the fuck would trained assassins leave such a weird crime scene behind? Why not just have her disappear forever? And even and even arguably weirder theory is that some people some people think a wolf killed her. Mm-hmm. I'm going to repeat that. Some people believe that a six-year-old was murdered by a fucking wolf, big dog, and the Boulder PD couldn't figure that out. And In an investigation that involved God knows how many officers and dragged on for over 20 years. Did the wolf choke her? Did the wolf put on that little garage, you know? The wolf change her clothes. The wolf write that fucking note. How does the ransom note work into that? Good question. This theory holds that she was attacked by a wolf and her parents freaked out thinking they'd get in trouble for not protecting their daughter from wolves. You know, because that's the thing. Uh, So they covered up a wolf murder by staging a kidnapping. Anyone over the age of 12 who believes that should be sterilized forever. Not kidding. Now let's look at a few YouTube comments left under a video called Program to Kill Satanic Cover-Up Part 31, Jean Benet Case, John and Patsy Ramsey. Here are my favorite comments. Think Tank supervisor, Deborah Reimer posts, this reeks of multi-generational MK Ultra mind control programming. Lord help us. Good job, Deb. Thanks for showing up. Multiple generations of people with their minds controlled by the CAA, right? All this training, all this investment. Also a six-year-old can be killed. A girl who, you know, could also just be run over if they wanted her gone. But nope. You gotta do this long, complicated, (laughs) lots of training, mind control, weird shit. Takes decades to kill this kid. Obvious Ivy League sociology professor, Jerry Jamify posts, trauma-based mind control. They were preparing her to become a Hollywood elite sex slave and it got out of hand, maybe. Oh, sure, Jerry, maybe. Or maybe you're fucking crazy. Hollywood elite sex slave, why don't, why don't you go hang out with Corey Feldman? You guys would love each other. Uh, Mensa member, Eyes to See posts, shadow government, satanic cover-up, snuff film, CIA. Christmas is a high blood sacrifice day. Thanks, eyes to see. You just really opened our eyes to your ability to throw out random conspiracy terms. I I can do that too. Just check this out, right? I I see your terms and I raise you. Agenda 21, Denver Airport, Bilderbergers. Bohemian Grove, Flat Earth, Wizards. Probably not even a troll, Michelle Post. I am sure Hillary Clinton is a part of all of this. Oh man, think about how fun Michelle would be to hang out with if she actually believed shit this stupid. I, I love it, it kills me the, the killery stuff, what people will believe, the specific details they'll believe. They'll believe shit like that Hillary Clinton, who was the fucking first lady in 1996, took time away from White House duties to kill a six year old pageant contestant in Boulder and then hide her body in the basement. Right? You, you'd think someone may have noticed the first lady lurking about in the neighborhood. Maybe notice she wasn't in the White House and Secret Service agents never let her out of their fucking sight in public. You need to get sterilized as well, Michelle, for sure, forever. Any kids you have need to be taken from you. Finally, N. Kogi, knee, toe, just a bunch of gibberish. Uh, X posts The word Burke, as defined in the World Book Dictionary from 1974, is to kill by suffocation or strangulation. The second definition is to conceal. That actually is true. It's true. It does, toe X. That's true. And the word coincidence means. A remarkable concurrence of events or circumstances without apparent casual, casual connection. Casual connection. And the second definition of the word lunatic is an extremely foolish or an eccentric person. And that's you. This kid wasn't named Burke so he could grow up and strangle his sister. You paranoid fuck wackadoodle. Stop it. Get a job. Fuck off YouTube. Do something better with your life. And the definition of the word (laughs) flustered mush mouth. It's dead comments. Ah, struggling. It's doing so well for half. And then, ah. And I got tri- tripped up, but that felt good. That felt good. Just take a little break from all the heaviness and just, just look into utter maniacs. Let's, let's get out of here. Idiots of the internet. 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 Okay, so final thoughts. We likely will never know who killed John Rams. You know that now. T- tons of books have been written by tons of people involved, suspects, detectives, uh, private investigators, you know, on and on and on. And the one thing they all agree on is nothing. Maybe that's another reason this case is fascinating for so long. You know, we meet sacks, do not like unsolvable puzzles. We like answers. In this case, it it feels like there should be some answers, but there aren't any. Nothing definitive. If I was forced to pick, I've thought a lot about this this last week, I would say that JonBenet was not molested and that her brother did it. I would say that it was an accident and that the parents freaked out and then decided to cover it up in in a, you know, panicked attempt to protect their son. While well, it doesn't make a lot of sense, it does make the most sense to me that Patsy wrote the ransom note. John intentionally messed up the crime scene, wiped down the, you know, the, the body. They, they they threw off you know the investigators with various nonsense. Burke was not asleep. You know, John and Patsy, smart, successful people, maybe even in their shock, you know, and trying to pull themselves together to protect their son. And they just come up with this fucking convoluted plan. And then once they start on that road, maybe they're worried that they'll be implicated as well. You know, now, now they're going to suffer also. I... I I don't know. I, I think if I had to pick, that's what happened. It seems to be the least ugly truth of anything that could have happened as far as I can think. You know, accidental blow from her brother, far better fate than some pervert breaking in and terrifying Jean Bonnet before she died. Terrible for the parents if it is true. You know, can you imagine having two kids, having one killed the other? Whew, for parents, maybe that, maybe that is the worst scenario than anything else I described to start this suck. So rest in peace, Bonnet Ramsey. I, I hope it was quick and painless, whatever happened. Time now for Top 5 Takeaways. Time, suck. Top 5 Takeaways. Number one, child beauty pageants pageants are weird and gross. To me, you know, you think your kid is cute. I get it. But maybe just tell them that. Maybe just tell them that they're cute. Give them a healthy self-esteem without dressing them up like, you know, uh, pedo porn stars. Number two, the murder of the six-year-old beauty pageant winner, John Bonet, will likely never be solved despite over a thousand pieces of evidence, thousands of man-hours investigating. From the initial sealing of the crime scene by John Bonney's family and their friends, to the lack of concrete evidence to pin any one person to the crime, to no investigators seemingly being able to agree on anything, and the death of several suspects, this mystery will remain a mystery. Number three, why did the story become so popular? I think America was captivated by the death of a pretty little girl because a lot of us American meat sacks worship beauty. We care more about pretty people than Lady Neds. We should maybe work on changing that a bit. Number four: if Brother Burke didn't have anything to do with Jean Bonnet's murder, then you know, besides her, he's the biz- biggest victim in all of this. His family is thrown into the center ring of a media shit show, and he himself became a hated murder suspect at the age of nine. In September of 2016 to honor the 20th anniversary of Jean Bonnet, Ramsey's death, Burke, Ramsey came forward. He'd been out of the public spotlight for a long time, wanted to share his side of the story for the first time on Dr. Phil. Ramsey poured out his heart. Dr. Phil described the emotions he underwent, saying, "I remember the viewing." The casket was small. Her eyes were closed. I want to honor her memory by doing this interview. I don't want anyone else to forget. He also said in the interview that for the last 20 years, I wanted to grow up like a normal kid, which does not include going in front of TV cameras. Currently, Burke Ramsey is a computer analyst who works remotely from his home-based office. Man, maybe I was wrong about best case being a Burke accidentally killing her. Now I'm hoping he didn't do it. I hate this case. Every day I've researched it, I suspect something else. But, you know, fuck it, There's aliens. Okay, there's aliens. Illuminati aliens, maybe that's it. Number five, new info. Another theory that's been popping up uh, you know, more and more is it claims that the murder of Jean Benet is linked to the murders of two other little girls in Colorado and Hawaii. Retired police investigator James Benish is of the belief that the murder of seven-year-old Tracy Marie Neef in 1984 and the killing of four-year-old Lacey Ruff in 1993 have something to do with uh, Jean Benet's murder as far as the same killers. All the girls were between the ages of four and seven were abducted and killed in a similar fashion. He thinks they were killed by brothers Aaron and Todd uh, Schonlau. There we go. Schonlau. When Tracy Neef was kidnapped in 1984, members of the Shonlau family were living close to Tracy's house in Thornton. Also, they were living close to Lacey Ruff when she was abducted and killed in Kauai. After Lacey's father discovered her body, Todd called the police, said his brother Aaron had abducted, sexually assaulted, and killed Lacey. Aaron was convicted for all of this, sentenced to life in prison. So he couldn't have killed Jean Benet, he was in jail, but Aaron had previously been in juvenile detention for sexual assaults that he allegedly committed as a minor in Thornton, which is, you know, very near Boulder. And when former detective Benish spoke with the person Aaron had gone to juvenile detention for assaulting, she alleged that it was actually someone else, Sean Lau's relative who had assaulted her. She'd been pressured to say it was Aaron. Benish believes Aaron's conviction may now be called into question and suspects the actual culprit may be involved in the murder of Jean Benet. He thinks that culprit may be the other brother, Todd. Well, Jean, yeah, fucking Todd, Aaron, God, man, so many fucking people in this thing. When Jean Bonnet was found dead in 1996, it's unclear where the Shalon-Lao family were based, but in May that year, a male member of the family was arrested for assault, as well as for domestic violence at a county close to Boulder. This means that the man could have, you know, uh, been living in Jean Bonnet's vicinity. Maybe one of the other relatives came to visit him. It's a stretch, I know. It's a stretch, I know, but it's the latest in the never-ending shit show list of suspects Someone is, I'm sure, considering writing another book about in the Jean Bonnet Ramsey case. Time suck. Top five takeaways. I feel like I know way more than I did about this case before we started, but I also feel no closure. Oh my heck, I don't flipping like it. Maybe someday our future robot overlords are going to figure out what happened to Jean Bonnet. Still, if they don't, the Jean Ramsey murder case has been sucked. I hope you found it uh, interesting, entertaining. Uh, thank you to the Time Suck team. Thanks to Queen of the Suck, Lindsey Cummins, my scared to death co host. Thanks for listening to that again. Thanks to High Priest of the Suck, Harmony Camp, Reverend Dr. Joe Horscock Johnson Paisley. Thanks to the BitElixir app design crew. New update almost here. Did three more rounds of beta testing this past week. And so far, no more bugs. Fingers crossed. Dare I say, new update may be out by the time you hear this or just maybe a, a few days away? Thanks also to Access Apparel, Script Keeper, Zach. Flannery, Hope you're feeling better. He's been a little sick. Thanks to Heather Knowledge Ninja Rylander for additional research. And what's up next week? I don't know. For the first time, I don't know. It's going to be a surprise. Still deciding. Time travels in two weeks. I know that. Spacers are voted for that. That'll be a fun and different one. Next week, well, it's going to have to find out. No surprise to end the show. Going to stick with uh, what I love to end on. You. Time now for Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your time sucker updates. First update is from Melissa. We're only going to do a few today because we've got some some big ones, some whoppers. I thought this was a good one. sent it a few weeks ago. Some heartfelt food for thought. Melissa writes, Dan, I began listening to you while I had a great deal of time stationed at Fort Knox for training over the summer. Thank you for your service. One of the other trainees enjoyed your show and I have as well. Maybe a little sick myself as I'm... uh, Uh, As the longer I'm in the military, the more differences I've seen with people. I'm writing today because you've mentioned several times the love you have for your children and how the time you have with them after your divorce has changed. I hope you and your ex co-parent well. Yeah, we're we're lucky. We're we're very amicable. It's half and half joint custody, which is nice. Uh, I'm writing as a woman who is also a father's rights advocate. I co-parent well with my daughter's father, and my husband struggles to co-parent with his ex and their seven-year-old and three-year-old daughters. He's a motivator for why I'm a member of the father's rights movement and two soldiers I deployed with who committed suicide after losing everything in divorce battles, including replaceable stuff, but more importantly, access to their children. How not deadbeat, not abusive, not anything bad about these men that would prevent them from co-parenting. The one thing that made them unfit parents was having a penis. And this is typical in Alabama. 22 states thus far have passed equal parenting as standard unless one parent is deemed unsafe with criminal or drug history, as it should be. I wanted to share a news story about a young man that fought for time with his child, fought against the mother's history of abuse and neglect, had his young child die in the mother's care, then have his rights of free speech stripped and jailed for speaking out against the judge. Yeah, thank you. We checked that out. Too much to go into detail here today because we got a lot more of what you said to, to share here. It varies by state and county, but my county takes 5% of each penny collected for child support, most yet a father's pockets. Many 50-50 parenting plans include wavery include waiving child support, in favor of paying directly to child care and provisions at each parent's home, and one or both parent providing insurance and splitting medical costs. You know the exact thing you would do if you were parenting under the same roof. I think this leads to less unwed pregnancies. Less babies is meal tickets. And if dads uh, are not only allowed but kind of pushed by society to be in babies' lives at conception, maybe less babies made until the man is really sure. Sorry, uh... Can't account for failed birth control, but I know men who have had babies and made the statement that the state can't take more out of their check than they already do. If these types of men are expected to provide half of the physical care, half the diapers, half the waking up, et cetera, we not only create more well-rounded children, but we keep the immaturity level of some parents down. Alabama has tried to pass similar bills to the one Kentucky just passed to share for shared custody as default. It gets passed in the Senate, but rejected in the house. Too much money the state would lose. My husband planned both children in his marriage. Tried for babies, attended, uh, oh yeah, because the money loses, also the federal government pays subsidies for stage collecting on support orders. Got it. My husband planned both children in this marriage, tried for babies, attended doctors' visits, shared in parenting responsibilities until the day his ex asked for divorce and her provisions of care were met. He spent 18 hours a week with his two daughters. That comes out to 39 days out of 365, a little more than 10.5%. Gave mom the house, no equity asked, pays child support, was made to feel every move he made was wrong and will be punished. We put $6,000 into a lawyer. We're able to get close to 40% of the time, but still not labeled as shared custody. Mom has default and veto rights. We will go back to court annually until the youngest is 19 asking for those rights, the constitutional guaranteed rights, rights that should be a no-brainer. I don't care if it costs us $100,000. We're also lucky with our income. Mom is as well. Could you please talk on these points? Please point out the Casey Anthony's of the mother population. Yeah, dads can be bad too. The abuse at the hands of stepdaddies allowed to happen by women, yet good dads pushed away. So many songs come to mind. Father father of mine from Everclear. All these daddy issues. How many in the courts are fostering them? If you've ever seen a dad crying over his kids... Yeah, a hardened military man with tears streaming down his face because the court stripped everything he fought for. If you've ever seen a bitch-ass mom who made the funeral of his man into a circus and a pity party for her, if you've ever seen a four-year-old receive a folded flag not knowing her mom kept daddy away from him, kept him from being able to provide a roof over his own head, even working two jobs, if you knew the feelings one of these these soldiers struggles with knowing other women are okay doing this to their kids' fathers, then I hope to hear a podcast soon supporting two good parents. Being in the military, I can only lobby so much, but I think if we could fix this one issue, we can lower the overall rate of suicide in the military. And if single young dads kept out of their children's lives, thank you, Suckmaster. Keep on sucking, Melissa. Wow. Yeah. Thanks, Melissa, for bringing up so many great points. I mean, that's such a big problem in society. Absentee fathers and then the courts do, in many cases, foster that, which is very unfortunate. Don't keep good dads away from their kids. They should have equal rights. This is something you don't hear about a lot in the push for equal rights, equal parenting rights for fathers. Equality needs to work in every direction. The idea that mothers are more important to their children than fathers is inherently sexist and just wrong. I've seen some fathers with far more maternal nurturing instincts than some mothers. Should be case by case, you know? Hearing the loss of father's rights connected to uh, military suicide is especially tragic. Support two good parents. Put the kids first in divorce as well. I can proudly say that my ex and I both did that. I proudly swallowed a fair amount of pride in my divorce and did what was best for Kyler Monroe. And I know a lot of other dads have done the same. Don't hurt your kids by trying to hurt your ex. It's about the most selfish fucking thing you can do in life. Help, you know, hope someone who needs to hear this message does hear it. Thanks, Melissa. wouldn't have shared it if it wasn't for you. Keep fighting. Hail fucking Nimrod. Now, got a lot of great updates about Mormonism. From Mormons, and non-Mormons. Like Melissa, most were very long detailed messages. So only time for, for one of those. Before we get to it, Quick Mormon update that answered something for me from Ryan Brewster, who writes, hello there. In regards to Martin Harris taking the first draft of the translated plates, it is believed that when Martin took the pages to show his skeptical wife, Lucy, she held the pages ransom and said, if the gold plates are real and Joseph is really translating them, he should be able to do it again, word for word. This is why Joseph said he couldn't translate the same plates ever again. And the translation changed. So the pages may not have been lost, but just kept away from Martin and Joseph. They may be lost now, but I thought this detail was super interesting and worth mentioning. Love the podcast, Ryan Brewster. Wow, that is interesting, Ryan. I was confused about that part and I couldn't get the answers I wanted. That makes so much more sense. Because how would Martin lose them? These super important papers. No, his wife, you know, took him, wanted Joseph to recreate them so she could see if he was telling the truth and he didn't. Said God didn't want him to repeat the story. So, you know, either God gave him a new vision or, you know, he just knew that if he tried to repeat the initial prophecy, he'd be caught up in a lie. Very, very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. And finally, a very nice update from some Mormon time suckers and space lizards and longtime stand-up fans, Carolyn and Park Mitchell, who write, Devout Mormons and we still love you. You frickin' heck spawn, mother trucker. <laughs> long-time listeners, this is my first time writing in. This topic seemed too important to not reach out with some clarification for your most recent episode. My husband and I are devout members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint Mormons, and we listen to your episode on Mormonism, and you'll be pleased to know that we still love you and Timesuck. We've been listening to your stand-up from the beginning, and I've been to four of your stand-up shows in Salt Lake City and the most recent live Time Suck. We will continue to be loyal space lizards, as we have since day one of your patron. Ah, oh, thank you. We also wanted to help clarify a few misconceptions and errors, and thank you for that. Those are my favorite kind of updates. We were both raised Mormon, but my mom converted to the church when she was seventeen and is the only member of the church in her family. So we understand that to others, some of the stories of how the church was founded can be hard to believe. So we weren't offended by how hard you were on Joseph Smith. Each person has to decide for themselves if they believe, and we by no means plan to try and convince you. You mentioned the episode around the 1947 minute mark that in 1978, when Spencer W. Kimball received revelation to allow black men and boys to be ordained into the priesthood, this is true, that he also lifted a ban on women and girls being allowed to enter Latter-day Saint temples. That part needs clarification. Although there may have been some restrictions on black women and girls going to the temple, which of course is not fair, all other women and girls have always been allowed to go to the temple. This is especially true because the temple is where we get married, also called sealed, so it's absolutely necessary for women to be allowed in. I just want to clarify in case anyone had interpreted that as meaning that all women have been excluded from temple services, since that is certainly not the case. Uh, The second point, no one can truly judge another person's worthiness, but we definitely don't think you are a son of perdition. Here's a good article that explains what that truly means. The short version is, sons of perdition are those who had a sure and perfect knowledge of the truth, then voluntarily turned from it. The first requirement then to become part of this group is to have been members of the LDS church. After that, they would have to go have the truth revealed to them with such sureness and clarity that there would be no doubt in their minds about the truthfulness of the Mormon gospel. So basically, it's impossible for you to be a son of perdition because you never became a member of the church. And I assume you haven't had any visions or revelations that have made you absolutely certain that the LDS church is true, and then decided to actively work against it. So yeah, heck yeah! Not being sent to Satan's outer realm. I like that part of the update a lot. Uh three, I have to say I was disappointed by how you just glazed over the Hans Mill massacre around 125. I appreciate that you mentioned it. Thought you would have at least commented on the terrible atrocities that occurred there. No matter what religion someone belongs to, they des- they do not deserve to be murdered in cold blood after they have surrendered, have their bodies mutilated, their wives assaulted, their houses pillaged Many accredited stories state that these tragedies and more were inflicted on Mormons that day and on many other occasions. Yeah, so uh, it bothered me that you failed to mention that none of these men were ever investigated or prosecuted, despite there being eyewitnesses and numerous written accounts of what happened. This was made even worse by the fact that Missouri state government was so heavily involved in their persecution and violence against the Mormons. If you spend so much time pointing out how silly some of these things we believe are, you should at least spend a few minutes expressing how wrong it is that anyone uh, would suffer so much because of their beliefs. Yes, and I'm doing that now. Part of that was, it was just such a big topic to pull off in a week that, uh, you know, the biggest episode yet, I just, I had to cut some narrative details and there weren't things that I was just, I didn't have time to thoroughly explore. And that's one of them. So yes, not, not intentional to whitewash it. That being said, I would also like to thank you for your kind words about Mormons. I'm glad that you've enjoyed your interaction with us. Mm-hmm. Oh heck yes, I have. Uh, my husband and I truly believe that the best way to gauge the worth of any organization, religious, secular, even the cult of the curious, is by the good they do and the lives they live. I like that. I like that a lot. Sorry this is so long. Just wanted to let you know that we appreciate you doing your very best to be impartial. You haven't offended all of us. Your loyal space is uh Carolyn said like the last, oh shit, Carlin. Hi, you corrected me. You knew I'd fuck it up. You knew I'd frick it up. I'd flip it up. Carlin said like the last name of comedian George Carlin. Yes. And Parker Mitchell. So many messages like that were sent sending, so many devout Mormons who listened to everything I said and are okay and will listen this week. Kudos to you. In my opinion, that's so admirable, especially today when it feels like so many people want to just get outraged, right? And this would be something that would be worth some outrage. I said this on the Secret Suck last Thursday, but I want to say it again here before I leave. I, I just applaud many of you Mormons for being able to laugh at your own religion, especially those of you who are deeply faithful. That takes a lot of strength and confidence, a lot of courage. I, I think that being able to laugh at ourselves is very important. Life is so much fun for all of us when we're all not offended all the time. You know, what if we lived in a world where we could all joke and be irreverent and talk things out and learn about each other and not get all bent out of shape over the opinion of someone else and not have that knee-jerk reaction of storming off, taking our toys, running home, crying, when we hear something we don't like or agree with, and then not talk about it later. Our world is good, very good. But how much better would it be if that was the reality we lived in? One where we can disagree and then get the heck and flip over it. Oh my goodness. Hail at you Mormons. Thank you for sending that in. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. And that's all for this week. Another long one. Dang it. I blame the script keeper. The two of us doing research together, just too much shit we get fucking sucked into. Uh, don't dress your little ones in clothes fit for a rebellious 17-year-old and parade them out on a catwalk this week. And just most importantly, you guys, gosh dang, my heck... Would you, would you just keep on sucking? Could you have time for it? It'd be good. <laughs> BPI specializes in taking your hard-to-solve case and continuing to never fucking solve it ever. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless? A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time This year my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible So I canceled a tour sacrificed that income and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more resting more relaxing more and enjoying time with family friends and just myself And i'm so glad I did I feel better than I have in a long time and my better health therapist Debbie was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, debbie